What is there in their apparently negative and destructive lyrics for fans to identify with? I went along to the rehearsal rooms in Camden to ask Claire. Well, why do you think punk rock started in the first place? Well, because it's like, it's got nothing to do with them anymore when, like, Rod Stewart gets up there and starts, like, going on with his string orchestra, you know what I mean? It's not what you feel like. So you've got to have some music what you feel like. Otherwise, you go balmy, don't you? Welcome to Pod Like a Hole, where three friends talk about their favorite artists, bands, and everything else in between. Uh, season one, we talked about Nine Inch Nails, uh, a band that we consistently and just are in so much love with and uh, never fails. And then that spilled over into season two, uh, which was uh, David Bowie. And in season three, we didn't decide to select one particular artist. We decided to run the gamut. And uh, you're joining us this late in the game of the never-ending season three. We are going to be talking about tonight one of Eric's picks, uh, The Clash's London Calling. Uh, this is Mark. I am uh, one of the hosts, and the aforementioned Eric is also with me. And to make up the rest of the trio is Steven. Um, so, how are you boys doing? We're in the dog days of summer. In fact, it sounds like most of our kids are probably going to be uh, heading back to school this week. By the time this episode comes back, comes out, it could be... Actually, you know what? That's only when I edit uh, episodes. Uh, Eric is definitely an assembly machine. Um, so I'm sure this episode will probably drop like maybe within three weeks. Um, well, do that. Do that. Two things. Uh, this, yeah, is, I don't think my... uh, this is Steven. Steven, hello, say hello. Yes. Yeah. Hey, I don't think my goddamn kid goes back to school for like three more weeks. This is the longest summer of all time. Uh, oh, that's right. Because you have him in that Christian school. That's uh, right. Just try to teach him real family values. Yep, exactly. The vacation, the you know, the entire summer he was supposed to be in vacation Bible school, but we totally screwed <laughs> that up, and he's just been at X, Xbox Bible school all summer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this was the first the the first time that I actually like really the the wife and I uh, discovered what parents are like. Oh my god, when you're ready for the kids to go back to school, because holy shit, it's exhausting. I I get it. I get it. Let the state, uh, you know, have we pay teachers to babysit our kids, right, Eric? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point. I think, uh, I think some, my tax dollars meant. I think some of the the, the union uh, toughs would disagree with that statement, but uh, but yes, fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I only kid because Eric, uh, you know, he he get, brings home, he puts food on the table uh, by educating our future of tomorrow. Um, not a teacher himself, but definitely doing his part to make the human society be better in our community. To that, I tip my hat. Thank you, Mark. So kind. So kind. Appreciate it. Uh, but... Uh... You know, but you all do something great for the community too by by producing this podcast. So and letting me be on uh, three seasons now as a guest host. 
trying to make my way to full time <laughs> guest host yeah. no, to, <laughs> the running joke the, that won't die no by the time we finally get done with the podcast we're gonna we're gonna promote him in the last episode like now you get to be a real member of the podcast and this is the last episode yeah <laughs> i mean speaking speaking of, of productivity i don't even the florence and the machine episode that might actually come out after this one at the the way my life's going right now eric so don't uh, or Mark, don't feel bad about your uh, your production output. It's uh, it's hard. No, it's hard. Uh, you know, when you don't have self sufficient kids uh, that Eric does, they have they're in an age where all has you know Eric has to do is just a can opener and a can of beans, and they're pretty much set for the week. Oh yeah. Um, whereas dream. Stephen and I, we still have a little bit of an exotic birds situation. Yeah, our yeah. lives are harder than Eric's. I want everybody to know that. Our, we have tough lives. Eric is on easy street. That guy, just, <laughs> he just he just wakes up and it's it's a huge big adventure every day for him. That's right. Seventy two yeah. degrees oh, in my Pour head. One out for all a the real time. one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Pour one out. We'll Jeez. save that for the. We'll save that sad news for the news. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I think we've done enough of uh, the getting to know yous, the how you doing. Um, as Mark Marin would say, did you get that thing on your toe fixed? Um, so on with the show, uh, Steven, um, in the award-winning segment, have you heard about this? Tell us what have we heard about this? Well, before we talk about the clashes, London calling later, let's talk about some news. Have you heard about this? You know, there's not a lot of news right now, guys. I, uh, I, I went through the uh, the airwaves. I usually I do this very technical uh, punching in artists we've talked about before into Google. It's uh, it's basically I mean, NASA has got nothing on me when it comes to how technical I get with looking at the news. So we kind of usually we talk about artists we've covered before, but we're going to stray a little today. Uh, we're going to talk about some news that, that is not artists we've covered before. But um, first, we will talk about artists we've covered before with two news items. The first is we did discuss that uh, the, the, the Nine Inch Nails listened to this podcast and heard our Ninja Turtles special, and they decided to score the new Ninja Turtles movie. We talked about that already. But the actual movie came out, and I just want to say, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to try to see it this weekend with my family. But uh, the reviews are in, and this new Ninja Turtles movie is supposed to be great, appealing to all ages, and uh, the Atticus and Reznor, People are saying, folks, people are saying this is their best work since the social network. Can you believe it? That's a uh, high praise. Is that is that really true? I mean, yeah, I dude. honestly haven't been reading the reviews on the movie nor the score, but I know that Eric uh, fell out of his chair and I'm sure he'll say a little bit more about that later. But I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, uh, I just as a brief aside, my son, who's going to be, you know, at uh, having a birthday coming up in October, he wants it to be a Ninja Turtles themed birthday party. So Fantastic. the fever is catching, folks. Uh, I've I've taught you know my kid likes the turtles. Um, we we did an episode on the turtles. I think it's pretty amazing that the Ninja Turtles they have endured for decades, generations. Like they are uh, Disney levels of generations of families, <laughs> like the Ninja Turtles. You've got people our age. You've got the generation after us, and then you've got our kids. That's uh, that's pretty cool. And, and the, the cool thing about the turtles is they've been redone a billion times. 
but the core thing stays the same and that's all you need you just need those four turtles and splinter and uh, you can you can move everything else around it so that that's fun i'm glad to hear that, that your, your kids got turtle fever too eric you like that soundtrack right yeah and that that is my uh, my plug like a whole um and i'll do that now just because we're talking about it but yeah it did i mean it is quite high praise to say it's as good as social network i was gonna say it's it's definitely on par with like the Watchmen stuff and the most Nine Inch Nails sounding um, since the Watchmen. Like I, I love all their scores, but they're definitely like a vibe and and a mood, and they're not all as engaging as uh, as it. But this one, you know, big, loud, noisy techno beats, uh, swooshing guitars, like it works. There's a lot of like little short, like thirty second song stabs and stuff here and there. Um, but there are some jams and grooves on it. It's a it's a good one. I, I, I'd be interested to see. <laughs> the logo is just ridiculous when you look at it on, on the streamer. So I'd be interested to see how uh, they curate that into like a vinyl or something at some point, because it's it's a pretty impressive piece of work. I like it, even though for all I know, we they, they recorded it in a weekend trying to impress their kids. I, you know, I have no idea, but it, it is very cool. I enjoy it. I hope so. Uh, other news. This is this is fun. Taking it back to our first episode of season three, so many years ago. What a decision it was to do this season this way. Uh, we covered the wall in our first episode, and the wall is fifty years old. No, I'm sorry. Dark Side of the Moon is Jiminy Christmas. The Pink Floyd's the wall, but Pink Floyd's biggest album, the number seven best-selling album of all time. Dark Side of the Moon, 50 years old, and uh, Roger Waters decided to remake the entire record. Um, I haven't listened. I don't think that I don't think it's out yet, the entire album, but he did release his version of Money. Roger Waters re-released Money. He covered it. He covered his own band's song. He put it out. And uh, I listened to it. And uh, it's definitely a different take on the classic money. I'd say it's not a good one. Uh, did either of you listen to Roger Waters' remake <laughs> uh, of Money? I mean, I only I'm just going to regurgitate jokes I heard on Office Hours because they listened to it on their show. And it basically sounds like if Leonard Cohen sang the Sopranos theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they said? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. OK, so I honestly have not listened to it and it's not like I'm actively boycotting Roger Waters. Uh, but the man is definitely doing something right now that is, uh, uh, diminishing his legacy of being, uh, an artist that I, you know, for a long time really respected. Um, I just don't know what his like personal politics are and all the stuff trickling out about the anti-Semitism, uh, it's not a great look and him kind of a, being a Putin apologist for Ukraine, uh, just not, not great everybody. Um, so I'm not really rushing to listen to this abomination. Cause I mean, in all intents and purposes, this shouldn't even exist, but, um, I did really enjoy his last record that he had produced by Niall God Nigel Godrich. And, you know, about two years ago before COVID, I think Steven and I were even considering seeing him at the golden one. We were uh, rearing, up, rearing up for it. Yep. Yeah. And 
now if that was to even occur i i don't think i would even go see the guy anymore um i don't know it's weird i don't know what he's doing but i'm i'm not really I'm not really enjoying it so yeah best of luck roger waters i mean i if you are the primary creator of something who's who am i to tell you not to redo it i mean whatever um it's just seems unnecessary because the dark side of the moon is pretty much perfect <laughs> just like why would you go do this uh, exactly. money money might have something to do with it the fact that he covered money is uh a good song to start with considering it might just be for money <laughs> he might just want to make some money I mean, when he goes on tour, he doesn't play the pros and cons and hitchhiking all the way through. He plays his old Pink Floyd songs most of the time. So whatever. I mean, yeah, he's getting older and he's unfortunately one of those people as they age, he's deteriorating somewhere, maybe even emotionally. Which is a lot to say when the man wrote albums that were based upon emotional deterioration at the age of 30, let alone (laughs) however old he is now original so other news out there not a lot of news of bands we've covered but uh some sad news folks we've had some deaths we've had three actually they came in threes this time and in a way i could tie all three of these to this podcast uh the first a friend of the show actor mark uh margulies um in uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is, uh, was it Uncle, was it Tuco Salamanca? No, he wasn't Tuco. He was uh, Hector, Hector, Hector. Salamanca. Yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, better, better. I mean, he was great in that as the guy in the wheelchair with the bell. I mean, he's it, That's how you remember him in pop culture. But a r- real Mark Heads will remember him from a bunch of Darren Aronofsky movies. And for whatever reason, his part in Pi and when I was at, I think Mark and I used to joke about this, his, his part in pie where he's like, ah, you, you know, you'll see the number 23 in the sky. If you want to, you'll see 23 numbers on the printed page. You just, you're going to see what you want to see. He's in a couple scenes in pie. And ever since that, whenever he popped up and stuff, I love him. Um, yeah, I agree. I always kind of would equate him for the being the pie, the guy from pie. And, um, it's, it's, uh, what's his name again? Mark Margulies. I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's one of those things I've always read but rarely seen. Life. Yeah. So that 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 was sad, and then uh, old uh, Sinead O'Connor passed away. That was a bummer. Yeah, Sinead O'Connor, who covered uh, "Nothing Compares to You," written by Prince, which was our second episode in this season, I believe we did. Um, and that was unfortunate. I was never a. I, I never disliked. Sinead O'Connor, but as a, you know, what am I, what was I around? What were we 12 when she was really popular? 10, 12, 13. Um, never made bad music from what I heard. <clears throat> just wasn't my thing, but she was great. That lady was a talent. She could carry a note. Yeah. I mean, not to cut you off, Steven, but that uh, Sinead O'Connor, uh, Connor, Connery, my God, uh, Sinead O'Connor documentary is what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, was fantastic. It really gave me a lot more respect for her. Um, seeing the footage of the whole thing from Saturday Night Live, I remember watching that live. Um, every night, my dad would record Saturday Night Live, and we'd watch it back on VHS the next morning. So I remember every, watching every that. Night. And every night, he did that every night. 
Every Saturday, excuse me. Yeah, every Saturday. He recorded it every Saturday and made you watch it every night. You had to watch every episode seven times. Every night, exactly. They teach you how to teach um, you how to laugh, Mark. But I do remember exactly like Clockwork Orange style. Um, this is comedy. Watch it. Um, but I do I remember, you know, my dad being a kind of a, you know, already radicalized by the Reagan. Um, you know, he definitely was like, what the hell is this? You know, um, and I just was confused by it. But like now looking at it from uh, history and time, um, I will say that, man, that took a lot of balls uh, for her to do that. And not to genderize it, but it was just more of just the courage that it did take and just those rain of booze. Uh, if you haven't seen the footage when she was at that Bob Dylan tribute yeah, and then she goes into doing the song that she did on SNL mm -hmm. and Chris Christopherson like pulling her aside and like, don't let the bastards get you down. Um, Christopherson was always, you know, he's good. He's a good dude. Um, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about Chris on the Willie Nelson episode a little bit. You got it. Um, but uh, man, uh, Sinead, not my not my jam, but I also really enjoyed the anecdote that uh, she had said that I really hope that Bono dies before me because I don't want him to just talk at my funeral forever. Because <laughs> um, I guess they were friends, and uh, that's, that's great. That's I hope Bono does talk forever at her <laughs> at her funeral. I'm sure he'll say a few things. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I remember seeing both the Saturday Night Live and the and the Bob Dylan thing. My parents like watching it and like back to back and they explaining what was happening and uh, what a bunch of yeah just that audience like really so you're at a Bob Dylan tribute concert and somebody's protesting something that's wrong with the world and you've got a problem with that <laughs> like what a yeah no that was that was the first that was a sign of the bloom coming off the rose with the uh, boomers oh, yeah. um yeah, and uh, yeah, and she was ahead of the curve too with the uh, Catholic Church uh, speaking out on it because uh, that that definitely, if that were to happen even ten years ago, people would be like, "Yeah, fuck the Catholic Church." So, yeah, that's uh, ahead of the curve. Let's see, guys. This is this. We are men of a certain age. Many people of a certain age are sad right now. So Pee Wee Herman passed away. Paul Rubens. That was fairly big news in our circles. If I were to sit back and try to say, "Hey, did we ever talk?" I know I'm sure we've talked about Pee Wee in this season of the podcast. How could we not? He's had to have come up at some point. I definitely but brought I him mean, up when I when, like he Talking Heads gave me like Pee Wee vibes at times. Okay. Yeah, I definitely brought him up. Yeah, yeah. and I could. I, and I, I could definitely see that because there's that same kind of, you know, Talking Heads, Pee Wee Herman, B-52, Rod, uh, not Roger Waters, John Waters. Like I said, there's that mutant 1950s thing going on with those guys. Anyhow, Pee Wee Herman passed away, and that makes me sad because uh, growing up, I watched that movie a billion times on, like, Fox 40, uh, syndicate, like a TV version of it, and Comedy Central probably. But I remember, really remember Pee Wee's Big Adventure always being on, like, Channel 31 or but then, of course, I probably watched every episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse on uh, Saturday mornings. Um, that was a big part of the old childhood. My dad hated Pee Wee. He hated him. Wow. Um, <laughs> so Pee Wee died. How do you guys feel about it? Make it 
sad. He was 70. Uh, kind of young. This one, this one hit me hard. Yeah, he was a big part of my childhood. Um, love that show. That show was just uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. And, of course, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the movie, Tim Burton, is, is fantastic. Pee-wee's Playhouse, though, was like this weird collage of 80s weirdo pop culture, um, which was taught me a lot before I even knew how cool that stuff was. Um and uh, just and just very funny and not afraid to like go dark or have Pee Wee be an asshole because he's basically a, a kid, you know, and kids can be assholes. And uh, anyways, good stuff. Uh, definitely sad. Um, and you know, uh, he was a guy who kind of got done dirty by 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 the media uh, for for really kind of no big deal, um, and uh, kind of lost that career, but. You know, it was maybe time for Pee Wee to go at that point, and he went well, on to other things. But uh, yeah, no, he was done dirty, and it was you know jerking off in a porno theater. I mean, who wasn't right. jerking off in a porno theater? Right. It was a slow day, slow day at the office for the cops to go down there and. His know. mugshot will always be the best. Oh though. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, and he basically <laughs> played that same. He just took that mugshot. He walked right out of that police station and right into Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He looks yes. just like that Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> It's, his um, mugshot looks like he should he should be named Needle Needles and have a toothpick. In his yeah. yeah, you know I didn't I didn't realize he joined that biker gang that he did to the tequila yeah, right. dance. Yeah, <laughs> he, uh, apparently he like the the next two seasons of Pee-wee's Playhouse were like already under contract or filmed. I didn't even remember that, but he it went on for two more years after that. Right, right. but uh, yeah, that was silly. His, his career bounced back. I mean, he, oh yeah, he, oh, yeah, and definitely well regarded. And I think he got his. He got his due in the comedy comedy world um, for sure. I got, I got two things. Yeah, one, it's just he was a very warm human being. I, I really just uh, whenever he'd pop up in something, even playing a weirdo, there was something about him seemed very genuine. Uh, like he hit a wavelength that not many other people did. It was great. Um, and also, I just remembered this: uh, the hamburger train on pork soda, the, the Primus samples. Uh, Cheech and Chong's nice dream. So there you go. That's how Pee Wee's tried to right? Yeah, I mean, I loved Pee Wee Herman, and unlike Steve's dad, my dad was the one that kind of showed me. Um, I I don't know if before the Playhouse show, uh, it was ever on every Saturday morning. Um, like if he had his own like stand-up specials or something, I was always very confused. Like where this guy just was like plucked out of. Yeah, he, he had did. a I HBO a, special, had, which was his, the Pee Wee Herman show, which was like Pee Wee's Playhouse, but a little bit more adult. Yeah. And then they made the movie. Yeah. And then then he get in the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and, my in the original specials, I think I watched one of them once years ago. Yeah, they were more adult, but there were things from that that were pulled and used in the movie and the TV show. Like the giant shoes. Yeah. I, and everything I've heard about Pee Wee Herman, um, you know, how he's reached out to people and just was like the kindest person that you would ever like want to actually interact with. I had a Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse lunchbox in second grade. And this was kind of around the time I think things were uh, the scandal was hitting him. But I still like, you know, proudly carried that lunchbox around. Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was also just an all-timer. Uh, it's Tim Burton's first movie. Um, it's just so good. I mean, I watched the shit out of that movie. It's like a movie that made you laugh and kind of scared you a little bit with the large Marge stuff. 
And um, I think around the, I, now I'm thinking like might be a great time to show that movie to my kids, but it's not available on any streaming service right now. I might have to just bite the bullet and buy it. But yeah, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. What a what a fucking great movie. Um, and he just seemed to be so just everyone who 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 met him just loved him and uh he, just a weirdo comedy um god what a vision he had and building this character who in all intents and purposes should have been like as annoying as ed grimley a martin short character um but i felt like ed grimley was always like the uh the store brand version of Pee Wee, even though probably Ed Grimley came first, but he did it right. Paul Rubens, pour one out. Uh, I love, I, I, I really did love that guy. Here, here. Yeah. All right. Rest in, rest in peace. Pee Wee Herman. That's the news. Very morose. All these people dying left and right. Let's pick it back up with some plugging like a hole. So Eric, you already, you already. Yeah, that's, that's all I up. got. Yep. God, you're a piece of shit. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't really have any plugs myself. No, I've been. Mark, uh, God damn it, you do that every time. Pick something right well, now. Well, well, here's the deal. Okay, I mean, I guess what I have been doing um, to kind of gear myself up to watching Oppenheimer, but if I don't act now about actually going to see that in the theater, I'm gonna probably have to wait to see it in uh, you know some streaming thing on my own te- television, but. I've been actually going back through some of the uh, Christopher Nolan movies. I've been watching following Memento and uh, Insomnia. So I've I've finished his first three movies um, and just his different style. Like you could definitely tell that he's still trying to find himself in those early films. Um, Memento. uh, I forgot that it ended with a David Bowie song in the credits, something in the air, um, which was Probably one of the better songs off of uh, ours. I think that's what it was off of. Oh, were you were you watching it late at night and you fell asleep and you're like, did I fall asleep because it's late at night or because they put the David Bowie song off hours? <laughs> at least it wasn't Thursday's child. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, Christopher Nolan. Um, I always get a little puzzled when people like, yeah, I didn't really care for this particular Christopher Nolan movie because I'm like, the man just comes out with just hit after hit. I don't know what you're talking about. He's like a modern day Stanley Kubrick, but what do I know? Now the only but ones, yeah. the only ones I haven't liked are the ones I haven't watched and I haven't watched. I, two mean, of them. I haven't, I haven't t- seen Oppenheimer, but the wife and I are trying to go see it. Uh, yeah. it is supposed to be in the theaters for a while. Cause it's making so much money. So we might get lucky that good. Um, yeah. And then, uh, I never saw tenant and I probably, you know, I'll watch it one day, but, that's that's a movie my, that I, I feel I, is going to need to grow on me. Yeah, I try, yeah. Even though you know some of my friends don't understand the quality of a film, like say John Carter, uh, I do trust you guys. When you say Tenant is not worth my time. Um, uh, yeah. I think it is. I think it's at least worth one watch. Um, but I, it is like a movie that you probably need to actually do repeat viewings in order to actually understand what the fuck is going on. It has its own like mathematical yeah. for like formula to watching it. It's 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 homework, homework the movie. But it's uh, it's, but but it's not. It's yeah. It's but I I don't hate that kind of experience. I just have to be in the mood for it. Eric loves. I have homework. to be in the mood for it. Um, Eric loves homework. He asked for the teacher every day. Hey, yeah. you forgot to assign us homework. 
<laughs> that kid. <laughs> then, he, then, he be, then, then he became friends with, with us and more importantly, me in this case, and got told to listen to goddamn albums he didn't want to hear, but he did it anyhow. Oh my God, Steve, fine. I'll listen to this John Zorn record. Christ. Um, <laughs> this is not good. This is just noise. Um, yeah. And then but we'll I, listen to all 72 minutes of it. <laughs> but I also never, I, and I, this is not on purpose. I still haven't seen Dunkirk. And for that, I feel ashamed because I feel like that's great, but I've never watched it. I'm sure it's great. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. You'd like it. It's yeah. like, uh, we'll fight them in the beaches speech from Winston. So that's it'll but, it'll appeal to your, uh, you know, Iron Maiden sensibilities. Yeah, there you go. But, but even, mean, like, even that done, one's, that movies are great. even that one's not safe from Nolan's but, like, uh, likes to fuck with time and uh, in his movies and Dunkirk, Dunkirk is no exception. And, and I think that's a great, you know, definitely a great uh, signature style to Christopher Nolan. But uh, yeah, we don't need to talk about the Batman movies again because they're great. But then what I was working my way back towards is it legitimately like I think it, uh, the prestige and inception are two of my favorite movies ever made. I could watch those over and over again. Those are just fucking wonderful the best yeah the best great uh i i sleep a little bit on the prestige but uh man inception gets me every fucking time it's great prestige is my favorite movie of his and it has david bowie in it as we all know so eric gun to your head what's your favorite chris nolan movie uh well i just i guess gun to my head i'm gonna probably say inception yeah probably Although a Batman, a Batman uh, could certainly swoop that out. Any other the Dark Knight, Dark Knight is the one I always will yeah. revisit. It's a yeah. probably a close one-two between the Dark Knight and Inception for me. I always like to think of uh, Heath Ledger shaking the keys when he's at the uh, jail cell. Um, yeah, I would have loved if Eric said Insomnia though. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to be different. <laughs> that's my favorite robin williams robin williams serial killer movie yeah you like it better than one hour photo <laughs> uh well actually i have i have a emotional connection to one hour photo with steven <laughs> and my friendship so <laughs> yeah uh we'll leave that we've either told that story or we will not tell it again right now um fair enough all right i got two plugs one is uh, this ridiculous band I sent you guys link to links to called the Nuclear Power Trio. They're uh, instrumental. Uh, they're from metal bands, but they're they they play like super technical, fun timey rock with like shades of flamenco and synths and stuff. And for whatever reason, they wear like masks of uh, Kim Jong Un, Donald Trump, and Putin. Um, but they've got this album that just came out called WAP, <laughs> Wet Ass Plutonium. And I, if, if instrumental, super technical stuff is not your ben thing. Ben Shapiro is not going to be a fan of that no, one either. He's not, he's not. And if that kind of stuff usually isn't your thing and it's not everybody's thing, I still think give this album a try. It's super danceable. Uh, and just the, 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 it's funky as all hell, but still hard. It rocks. It's catchy. And these guys are just, I mean, one of them is like from Solid Carnage, like bands like that. You can never tell. It's, uh, I thought it was gimmicky at first, but then I listened to their whole record. It goes by, it's about 38 minutes long. I really think it's great. Uh, just funky, hard, danceable, uh, technical on the level of Ingve uh, Malmsteen and, you know, Les Claypool jamming, but good. 
I, I dig it. The Nuclear Power Trio. It's fun. They just put another record on. So check out the Nuclear Power Trio. And then if we're going to go, we're going to go back to movies again. And a movie I've probably brought up a billion times. But got to talk about Indiana Jones again because they showed Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade here in Auburn, California. And I went and took my seven-year-old to see it <clears throat> at the theater. And they actually showed it at the theater across the street from the theater I saw it as as a kid. So, of course, I was just uh, beside myself with the, you know, time as a flat circle of it all. But uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I'm sure I've said in this podcast before, is definitely my favorite indie movie and just one of my favorite movies. Just I love it. And but is it the best one? I probably not. Raiders is probably the best one. But Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the one that I enjoy more. I hear you. Yeah. yeah. But <clears throat> instead of just, you know, plugging a movie we've all all seen, uh, probably some of us more than 50 times, I'm going to rattle off right now some of the reasons that The Last Crusade is great um, because our podcast never runs long. So I thought I'd pad it out. So Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, off the top of my head, I typed all these up in like less than two minutes. Um. You lost today, kid, but you didn't have to like it. That line when he gets the hat. Uh, ah, Venice, that that uh, that line after he's making out with that girl. Uh, that, that's hilarious. Uh, Sean Connery, when he says, oh, she talks in her sleep. <laughs> and the look on uh, 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 Harrison Ford's face. That's great. And then. Uh, Which I heard was improvised. Was it was also improvised, though, the part where he. <laughs> He says, I'm as something as the next man. And then Harrison Ford says, I was the next man. Uh, <laughs> again, uh, you know, the, the floor is on fire and the chair, that, that whole bit. Uh, the first time you see Henry Jones Sr. come into shot when, when Indy jumps into that room and then out of the shadows comes Harrison or Sean Connery. That's great. Uh, Sean Connery's disapproving look. At, at, at Indy when he takes that javelin and he gets that guy knocked off the motorcycle bike and the way his dad looks at him. Awesome. Uh, the It was then that I remembered my Charlemagne with the birds on the beach, that whole bit. And he um, makes that like, like <laughs> sound at the birds, at the yeah. geese. Uh, the lot, you know, I should have mailed it to the Marx brothers. That's an old timer. Then uh, you got, Indy doing the whole bit where he's like, well, Marcus will blend in, fade away, blah, blah, blah. And then it smash cuts to Marcus saying, does anybody here speak English? Uh, or, or or ancient Latin or something, you know. Uh, there, There's a bit where when they're underground in the catacombs in Venice and they see something on the wall, and I didn't notice this for years, but the lady he's with, the bad guy lady, uh, she betrays him. She sees something. She's like, what's this? And he says, it's the Ark of the Government. And she's like, how do you know? And he's like, oh, I just know. And they do the, quickly, they do the music from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark for a second. That's, I, that's wonderful. Um, the, the whole theme song for the Brothers of the Cruciform Cross and just the Grail theme song in general, it always brings a tear to my eye. That entire tank fight scene that's like 10 to 15 minutes long towards the end there where you've got Indy on a horse and he hops on the tank and his dad's in the tank with Marcus. And then at the end, it goes over the cliff and they think Indy died that whole thing. Uh, that, that part where they're, where they're flying the plane around, they, they steal a plane from a blimp and Indy's flying the plane and his dad's 
shooting the gun and the, his dad accidentally shoots the tail off the plane and he, he turns around and he goes son i think they got us <laughs> it's just um, the best yeah um and of course the whole the whole no th- ticket that's right the no ticket part where he punches him and knocks him out of there um <laughs> and then uh you know the the end with the three trials and the, the leap from the lion's head and just uh you know, it's Indy goes in there and the old knight and the old knight says like, oh, you look strange for a knight. And, uh, you know, they get the grail and they save his dad. And it's, it's just wonderful. But there's this part at the end. It's my absolute favorite part of the movie. And it wasn't when I'm a kid, but it is when I am now watching it. Is at the very end, as they're running out of this temple that's crumbling, uh, the knight is in the distance, the, the grail knight. And his dad, Henry Jones Sr., sees him in the distance and kind of like gives him a note. They give each other a knowing look and Henry G- Jones senior's whole life was trying to find that grail. And he finally got that close to it. So that's, that's, that's closure for him. And then they ride off into the sunset. Anyhow, there's many other wonderful parts from that movie. And that was all written off the top of my head because that movie is wonderful and chock full of memorable scenes and Indiana Jones and the last crusade is enjoyed by 42 year olds and seven year olds to this day. Thank you. For sure. Well, before this devolves into indie like a whole, I think it's time that Eric takes the wheel and uh, we talk about tonight's subject, The Clash. Uh, so before Eric guides us through a track by track of London Calling, an album released in 1979. Um, he's going to tell us a little bit about The Clash themselves. Eric, take it away. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so um, the, well, I guess right before we get into the history of them, what's our history with them? Um, Mark. Um, my history with The Clash does not run far in and as deep as yourself, Eric, maybe even Steven. Um at first, I was just a uh, the essentials collection that uh, crossed my inbox before I actually purchased any of their uh, records. I did eventually collect all of their discography, but it was working at the record store, getting exposed to a lot of new music, getting exposed to the influences of the music that I was listening to. Clash was always cited as a band that was deemed to be important. I mean, uh, you can't swing a dead cat on any top 500 list and not see at least maybe two clash records on there. Um, certainly the record that we're going to be talking about tonight is always on that top 500 albums of all time. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, studying this record tonight actually did open my eyes. I never knew this is me outing myself because of my ignorance with the clash. I always thought that Joe Strummer sang every fucking song Uh, i never thought that mick jones or even uh paul simonin uh, hopefully that's how you pronounce his last name i'm gonna go with it that's how i do it um and so uh they also have some lead vocals on this so that kind of blew my mind a little bit um the punk version of the eagles uh so i i like that um I uh, i think that's fair mark because just unless you're a clash head, 
I mean, you just always associate Joe Strummer with being the main guy. So exactly. Um, and I never really spiraled out. I mean, I saw when, um, Paul, the bass player had a project with Damon Alburn, the good, the bad, and the queen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed the clash. They have undeniable classic hits. The reason that they are so highly regarded and influential is for a very good reason, uh, for only having five records out there and, uh, four of them being good and five and one of them being really bad. Um, but yeah, no, they had some lasting power, even though their discography is not as deep. I didn't follow Joe Strummer's uh, all throughout, and I didn't follow Mick Jones's Big Audio Dynamite. I think that was his project. Um, but yeah, I do like this band quite a bit. Um, do I put them on a lot? No. But when they are on a shuffle, I will always listen to that song. Uh, and yes, I had a similar revelation about Mick Jones. I knew he would sing from time to time. I didn't realize how many absolute bangers that I love were Mick Jones tracks. And that was definitely a revelation in this, in this project. Crazy. A hundred percent like train in vain. Uh, uh, I'm not down oh, yeah. ridiculous. Oh, yeah. But we'll get in. Yeah, we'll get into it. Steve, uh, what's, what was, where, when'd you dip your toes into the clash? Yeah, we'll just, we'll discuss the Mick Jones thing more as we go through some of the songs. Um, <clears throat> but they definitely, Two singers sound similar enough to where you can make that mistake. Um, yeah, when I was growing up, uh, like I was an MTV kid at my grandparents' house. And I remember seeing the video for Rock the Casbah a lot in the 80s. And always liked that song as a kid, even though I didn't really know what it was about. It's a catchy song. It appeals to children. I'll get back to that later about how the Clash can appeal to the children. So I, I definitely, that was the first time I knew who the Clash was. But I never really listened to them a lot, even when I started collecting records. Um, <clears throat> I got like when I finally got got into air quotes punk music, it was more like the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits. Uh, and I got into the Clash later as a young adult uh, when Eric actually got me into them, <clears throat> probably when we lived together. Um, that have been t- two decades ago now. But yeah, obviously, like I knew of the, the popular songs and uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go and all those. But once I started getting into them and, and enjoying their albums, the the hits stuck with me. And you're always, for for the longest time, now, I think even on our wedding playlist, like there's a, you know, Lost in the Supermarket might be on there. Like there's, there's songs of theirs that for decades now have been on playlists I make, just my like favorite song playlists. Uh, and I'll talk about most of those songs tonight. Most of them come from this album. They just got some hits that just that really stick with me and have resonated ever since uh, I got into them. Um, and I've always been grateful that Eric said, Steve, you should listen to The Clash more. I don't even remember what the details were. I just know that Eric's the guy that told me that I should listen to The Clash more. And I did. So there you go. Took a 60 bus out of downtown Campbell Benz. I know he was on there, he was waiting for me. While the punk rockers and the moon stompers were out on the corners where they're sparing for change. I started thinking, you know, I started tricking. Good. And, 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 and my history with them only goes back, a, you know, a little bit farther. I think I had just been a couple years into them before I passed, like, you know, pushed them on you all. But, um,. My punk phase was also like very limited. I liked Dead Kennedys, I liked Rancid, and I kept hearing that like Rancid was like 
heavily inspired like by the clash um as far as being like rockabilly roots rock ska reggae uh but like also really catchy Rude boy punk. yeah and and sure enough yeah absolutely 100 percent like they're they're like the you know definitely clash mark mark three and um and so at, at some point when i was away at college at sonoma state i did work at a vinyl shop there and i got my hands on like london calling and i was like well now's the time it's and and got it and and got really into him um but if <laughs> if uh i was being really honest my true introduction to the clash was a little uh, i believe 1992 93 record called medusa by annie lennox This was a record that my uh, parents played on car trips all the time. I often talk about the road trip mixes because it introduced me to some music. And on Medusa, uh, Annie Lennox covers Train in Vain, a pretty awesome like uh, cover of that. And and anyways, that never like that became an earworm immediately due to that. And then when I heard it on London Calling, I almost felt, I did fall out of my seat. I'm sure. So um, so props to Annie, Len Annie Lennox for uh, doing a fantastic cover of that shot of that song. Um, I mean, to be fair, Eric does just fall out of his seat most days, I, I, so it's yeah, yeah. it's okay. Um, <laughs> Especially if there's a seat, <laughs> if there's like a chair in my path, I'm generally going to fall over it. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Dick Van Dyke show over here. Um, All right. Oh, man, I was just going to say that. You teed me up. Thanks. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's get into it. Listen, The Clash, we don't have time to do the, a deep dive in the history. There's a fantastic documentary, and it's very short, too. It's less than an hour. It's called West Way to the World. It'll give you all you need to know. But here's the thing. Clash are wave one punk, a uh, UK punk, punk. Um, back when London was in the UK. Uh, this is I'm talking 1976. Uh, go back a year, 75. All the members are kind of spread out. Uh, they knew each other from art school, but they were in different bands. Joe Strummer, he was playing this band called the 101ers. They were like a rockabilly pub rock band. Uh, meanwhile, Mick Jones, he was playing in this band called London SS, which are kind of like an early punk. And the Sex Pistols are around. And the Sex Pistols are really, you know, truly the first punk band. And they're playing. And they were designed to be that way um, by Malcolm McLaren um, and Vivian Westwood. Uh, who owned the uh, the sex clothing shop? They basically uh, created this boy band called the Sex Pistols uh, that blew up the scene. And and even early on, like Joe Strummer says, yeah, we opened for the Sex or the Sex Pistols opened for the 101ers. And as soon as I heard them, I knew we were done. That was going to be the next the next phase. Um, and uh, you know, uh, one of Malcolm McLaren's uh, colleagues was this guy Bernie Rhodes, who was uh, you know looking to be a band manager. And he was already working with Mick Jones from the London SS. Mick Jones teamed up with Paul Simmerman, bass player. And um, they cycled through a bunch of drummers. Um, and, uh, and then they also needed a lead singer um, because none of them felt like they could cut it. Uh, and, that, and then eventually Joe Strummer, it was an easy, easy connection. And uh, there you have it. You got yourself a band. Uh, they don't quite have Topper Heaton on the drums yet. In fact, they even take their album cover artwork for their first uh, self-titled record, The Clash. 1977 is The Clash. Um, and then, like, he joins before they start recording. And you've got yourself a band. 
Kind of bouncing around, bopping around their 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 discography here. I mean, li- listen, their self titled album is a classic punk record, and it's got all the goods that make the Clash great. It's got some really catchy songs: Janie Jones, London's Burning, Police and Thieves. All, one of their few ska tracks on that that is is really good. Um, and give them enough rope. Their second record, uh, still very punk, but more uh, beefy production, saxophones, a little bit more cinematic. How do you guys feel about those 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 early records? Anything to add? I actually really do enjoy the first two records. Um, uh, it definitely has more punk sensibility, but it never uh, wears out its welcome. They go by pretty fast. Um, the first debut record, I think, it might be my third favorite of theirs. Um, Give Them Enough Rope uh, is also uh, kind of an underrated, overlooked album in their discography, um, but it, it's still pretty solid. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that. Yeah. Safe European Home, that that track is amazing. Uh, sax work on City of the Dead, really cool atmosphere. Steve, I will you- echo your guys' sentiments. <clears throat> I like those first two records. Um, I think I like the, uh, the, the, the debut one more than Give Them Enough Rope, but they're both good. And you guys said all the stuff I would have said about them. They're they're good. They're like Mark said. They released one bad record. The rest of starting to be impressed by their drummer Topper Heaton um, and he's can play a bunch of different styles of music not just the that you need for punk he can do all sorts of stuff using timpanis and uh, basically exploring some of that more reggae and root stuff so they're they, they're looking forward to expanding their sound on their next album I feel next like one, I feel like they like they were definitely a punk band, obviously. I mean, they, you know, like the second or first punk band, second band, Sex Pistols was the first. But I feel like they just, they evolved out of punk, like almost as soon as they were a punk band. Like, it just seems like, yeah, they're a punk band. And then before you know it, like even on that second album, they're starting to broaden their sound. Yeah. And, and I would say that there's a certain punk flavor that they were able to keep at least until they, you know, they broke up. Uh, but um, but you're right. They they were more interested in what else could they add to their sound than just keeping with that the three chord um, the three chord minute and a half tracks. Um, but yeah, the next album is London Calling. We'll get into that. That's what we're here for. Um, but after and that was a huge hit. Like they they went uh, absolutely just. Uh, uh, into the the stratosphere with uh, with that one, and um, and they were huge. They were playing big stadiums, 
and everybody wanted to know what was next. And what was next was this crazy project that I can't believe I must have just gotten a green light and whatever budget they needed to record Santa Nista. It's like a three or like a four. It's like a four vinyl set. Um, absolutely long, sometimes painstaking to get through. It's got them exploring now reggae, of course, ska, all that stuff, some surf music. It's got them exploring like even like rap and funk with lightning strikes, not once, but twice. Magnificent seven. You've got some absolute, just some of their best pop songs, police and thieves. Uh, you've got, um, somebody got murdered, uh, just some of their best pop songs. And then you've got a lot of fluff and not to be disparaging because they, you could tell they were having a lot of fun in the studio, but some real throwaway tracks too. Um, it's hard to get through the whole thing. What do you guys think about Sandinista? humongous meal i mean back when we look at the uh, springsteen episode uh me complaining about how long the river was uh sandinista was peeking around the corner and being like you really think that one was long huh <laughs> um <laughs> yeah, the, the, river, the river the river and all of the rivers uh, uh outtakes are fully fleshed out ideas and songs sandinista cannot make that claim <laughs> yeah um I appreciate the the big swing when bands just kind of have to get everything out of their system all at once. Um, but I think Steve had put this up like they could have released. Th this is three different records um, in order to just kind of bulk up their whole discography. Um, and I think that when you um, not to go too far in the future about what you're putting to say about combat rock, but combat rock it still kind of continues what they wanted to do with their experimentalism, but they trimmed it down so considerably. And I feel like they're definitely like hired an editor on that one. Like we can't do that again. Um, Sandinista has some excellent tracks, some standout uh, performances in their uh, catalog of songs, but man, do you have to, uh, go across uh, miles of desert to get to them sometimes. Yeah, I think the best way to treat Sandinista is to just put it on in the background and like clean your house. And then when a song that catches your ear comes on, sit down and listen to it. I maybe back in the 70s when you you bought an album and you absorbed every part of that album because you couldn't just stream whatever you wanted to hear. You'd appreciate it more. Um, but in this day and age, it is really difficult to listen to something all the way through that has so many unfinished ideas, but none of it's hard on the ears ever. I mean, some of it's, it's like, if I listen to Twitch or something like that by ministry, I'm like, yeah, this isn't my thing. It sounds kind of just like a sketch of a song, but it's not bad. It's never offensive. It's just a lot, <laughs> but I, I do believe really uh, classic our, songs on there. our boy Trent Reznor made the same point about this record when he, he often talks about like the days where you just made more of a, an event out of listening to a record. I think he actually name drops this particular record too. You are right. Also, he did, and he said so, the same exact thing I said. <laughs> yeah. It's, and so did Kurt Cobain who said he wanted to get into punk and this was the first clash album he bought. And he said, if that's punk, I don't want anything to do with it. That's what Kurt Cobain <laughs> said about Sandinista. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. Not wrong. 
all right. No, well, Sandinista, the, the review is the review for Sandinista is not bad, but it's a lot. Yeah, it's something you gotta go. You you just gotta go through, grit your teeth, and and do it. Yeah, there are some treasures to find. Um, specifically, them messing with this kind of like new New York rap like uh, sound, and then they would make a single only track, which was one of my favorites. This is Radio Clash that will come out in between this and the next. Time. Interrupting all programs. And their next album, like just like Mark said, paired they they took what worked from Sandinista um, and pared down a a pretty fun, pretty tight uh, record, Combat Rock, uh, where you've got uh, big political like punk anthems like uh, Know Your Rights to uh, definitely like. Stray Cats, better than Stray Cats ever did it with uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Um, mm-hmm. You've got Rock the Casbah, which is just an all-timer, all-timer pop track. It's got some all-time classics on there. Uh, Straight to Hell, uh, which was heavily sampled on M.I.A.'s um, Paper Plane song. Um, That song is great. Uh, Steven mentioned Rock the Casbah. Rock the Casbah is the ultimate cocaine song. Um, (laughs) It just seems like, even though I think Police and Thieves was the song that was featured in uh, Royal Tenenbaums, but I could definitely see Eli Cash doing a bump uh, with Rock the Casbah as bo- he gets in his little. Uh, they both were. They both were. Police and thieves when they're driving to it, and then later when he's hanging out with like the Egyptians, it's Rock the Casbah. But there you go. There you go. Both, both okay. Yeah. Um, so it all makes sense. Sharif, he don't he don't uh, mind it or something <laughs> like that. Um, but know your rights. Uh, the back half of that record starts to get a little more towards the Sandinista experimentalism. Um, not as straightforward, but, uh, it's still a great, great record. It's probably my second favorite of theirs. Um, so there you go. Combat rock. Go straight to hell, boy. Sometimes, and this isn't true. But sometimes I like like combat rock to me. Sometimes I'll be like, "This is almost as good as London Calling." Like the the high highs on combat rock are just awesome. But Mark's right; the second half kind of tails off. But the second half has good songs too. The first half though is just incredible. Like, just come on, man. Um, know your rights is a lot of fun. And then should I stay or should I go? All time classic, great radio song. You'd always hear that one on the radio. And I just hear the clash on the radio a lot. Like it is back in the days where this band like they got a lot of radio airplay and they were not you know being pushed on us by like the same uh radio stations that were trying to play like boston and chicago but they were still getting on the radio quite a bit um and hitting four quadrants but uh, that album was great this album is great and um 
the part on this record that I love is in Rock the Casbah. There's just one sound effect on Rock the Casbah where it sounds like a laser gun. Yeah, that part. That part's awesome. That's so cool. I've always loved that. It just comes. It's one and done. It just comes in and it goes. You're like, what was that? Uh, I've yeah, only done car- and the karaoke a couple didn't... times. I've only done karaoke a couple times, but uh, my Rock the Casbah uh, rocks that particular Casbah. Uh, the video for Rock the Casbah also is incredible. Um, anyhow, yeah, Combat Rock is good. The next record is not. You find out pretty quick that Paul Simmerman and Mick Jones are some fashion boys. Those, the, their style, I mean, Joe Strummer too, he kind of had always had like the, the pretty like crybaby rockabilly thing going on, which is great. But um, Mick Jones in that Rock the Casbah video dressed like a marxist uh revolutionary and paul cinnamon <laughs> always in his like suit and tie and hats just those guys sharp dressed sharp dressed men great uh but yeah you you're right the next album is uh hot garbage so they were beginning to fray during combat rock um nick jones would just be show up drastically late for practice and rehearsal and just kind of unprofessional in that way. While Topper Heaton had a pretty bad heroin addiction that was showing like in his work, he was off and off beat during the recording of that. And so um, Paul and Joe kicked out Mick and kicked out Topper all, you know, within a few months. And the question was, you know, are, is the clash done? Is that it? Um, another reason they kicked out uh uh, Mick Jones was, he was more experimenting with samplers, synthesizers, stuff like that. Um, and that wasn't the route at that time. They wanted the clash to go. So they're gone. They washed their hands of their, of their founding members and Bernie Rhodes, this manager who's been in the background the whole time. Well, he, he, he kind of takes the reins at this point and says, no, the clash is a commodity. We can do this. We can stay together. Um, and they hire three new players, a new drummer and two guitar players. Um, and uh, I think those guys have names. Um, Vince White, Nick Shepard, uh, Pete Howard. <laughs> but for all the reasons they kicked Mick Jones out of the band, Bernie Rhodes took over and threw drum machines and samples over this whole this whole record. Cut the crap. Their final album. Um, uh, and, you know, Joe Strummer, he would go through a journey and, you know, later in life, he became a very sweet kind of like, like uh, wise old punk in his, in his later days. But during this era, he was Mr. Business and there in the Joe Strummer documentary um, there, he is like uh, definitely like talking shit about all the old clash members and just loves these new young guys. He got in his band, even though they're making the most garbage music. It's very interesting to see. Very interesting to see Mr. Business. Um, anyways, Cut the Crap comes out. There's one single on it called This Is England. Uh, it's catchy if you want to know what 20 like punks in a beer hall sound like singing This Is England together over a uh, drum machine. Um, rest of the album is uh, it's not very engaging. It doesn't sound like The Clash. And even Joe Strummer would later say like, well, we found out what it, you know, how hard it is to write punk song without Mick Jones because Mick Jones would really write most of the music 
and Joe Strummer most of the lyrics until Mick Jones started taking over and singing his singing songs, but um, always the music and, and the melody. And without him, they were struggling, really struggling to, to really catch. So cut the crap. Not a great way to go out, fellas, but don't worry. The story doesn't end there. Anything to say on Cut the Crap, guys? It's bad. It's it's really bad. Um, I, I Musically, it does sound like, uh, I think I categorized this as a, like a 1980s movie um, that starred like Michael J. Fox trying to, you know, make it big in the city. Um, the sweet smell of success, I think, was no. Um, it sounds like a, a score for that type of movie with really kind of trying to have punk lyrics overlaid on top of it. Um, Doc just Hollywood. the production is hor- Doc Hollywood, not thinking of that one either. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it would be in that type of movie. But yeah, cut the crap. I think I've only listened to it twice in my lifetime and twice was too much. No, the secret of my success. Um, That's what it is. That's what it was. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't listen to it again for uh, this season because life is too short. (laughs) So I I haven't listened to it the first time. I listened to it one time years ago. Yeah, don't remember it being memorable. I listened to some Ghost Drummer solo stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to that. Well, there. The, their post clash stuff has some interesting, interesting uh, things and 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 noteworthy, note, noteworthy projects. We'll get to that. But let's go, let's go back to the the meal of the night, London Calling, big giant album, nineteen tracks. Um, we'll see how far we get tonight. <laughs> um, so this one, uh, once again, they're just coming off of like being these like these very political punks, more so than Sex Pistols. Um, uh, but also like, you know, also more poppy than the Sex Pistols. Um, and they want to expand their sound. And um, so they connect with uh, the guy Stevens, who is the producer, um, who did like a lot of what they called big beat music, um, uh, which would be like basically like Brit, like like Brit Rock, The Who, you know, this is your like British Invasion stuff. Small Faces, um, Rolling Stones, like, you know, he had a connection to all that. And um, and so he he recorded them at the Wessex in Wessex, uh, the Wessex studio in London. And. Uh, um, I mean, the background is, is like they did a lot of demos, they did a lot of rehearsals, they were having writer's block, and then they just started bonding as a team. And what they would do is they would do these afternoon rehearsals then they would go play soccer or, or or football, of course, as they called it, together, and then go to the pub afterwards, and they would do this every day, and then they would do a night session, and they would just keep doing that until they became friends and bonded, and and they were just clicking, and 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 they were ready to go. And uh, that's kind of the the noteworthy stuff I have on that. I'm sure there's much more out there. I'm sure there's whole no- books written about it, but uh, but for now, let's get into the tracks. Track one. London Calling.
All right, that's London Calling, track one. And what an opener. And, you know, for my money, I don't think The Clash has ever sound bigger than they sound on this song. Um, it comes in huge, uh, big upstroke guitar, chunky guitar riff, uh, a bass line that sounds like elephants marching down the street, um, and lyrics painting what would kind of be, it's, there's no theme to this record, but if there was a connective tissue, it's portraying London in a way that seems dystopian, that seems post-apocalyptic. And he's talking about, uh, London's drowning and I live by the river, um, basically the river the, the river thames uh thames flooded um and he's representing police brutality and this kind of uh jackboot force of uh of oppression that's happening there um mark what do you Except for that one with the yellowy eyes the ice is coming the sun's zooming in into stuff running the wheat is going to a nuclear era but I have no fear, cause London is drowning and I, I, I mean, it's an opening, it's a classic for a multitude of reasons. I mean, it's a pretty simple melody. It's a pretty simple idea, um, but it just has a lot of immediacy. There's not a wasted second on this song. It's just well-crafted. Uh, it has that melody and kind of momentum that just seems to march along. Um, Joe Strummer, he certainly puts on this great lead presence. He's got charisma and swagger and not the kind of fake uh, kind of lip sneering nonsense that sometimes I feel the Sex Pistols who were almost kind of considered the Beatles of punk um, and Having only one record, I don't really think the Sex Pistols were. It seemed like they were more of a cartoons, more of a mascot for punk than actually being punk. That's um, that's fair. And, that's fair. And I, as a punk fan, I will go ahead and say they're as a C minus punk band right there. Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah, I mean their record. Never mind the Bullocks is okay, but it's not like something that would ever be like this is the one. This is the 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 Rosetta Stone for all of punk music. And I think even Stephen will probably talk a little bit more about punk genre. You guys definitely appreciate that genre more than I do. I think that it's, I don't know, it doesn't really, you know, uh, raise up the arm hairs if you get what I'm saying. But I do think that Joe Strummer, he brings something different. And Mick Jones and him certainly are like a McCartney and Lennon situation that, again, I was not aware of. I honestly thought that there was just one captain of this ship, and it was Joe. Um, but uh, it seemed that Cut the Crap really does prove how important Mick Jones's presence was. Because, again, did not know any of the backstory. And man, does he have a flair for the ad libs, whether or not that was something that he actually wrote down, like at this part, I'm going to do this, but I, he's kind of got that sort of punk Elvis thing going on. Um, you know, now get this, uh, you, you get a little bit of that pretty much in every song. Um, it's upon re-listening, that's always something that my ears perk up to, um, you know, just kind of letting the audience know there's he's, they're in on something. Um, the song definitely has a uh, apocalyptic feel to it that things are getting worse and they're only going to get worse from here on out. Uh, London calling um, was used in world war II when they would be identify, uh, identifying the station. So that's a little bit of history there. 
thanks for bringing up thanks for bringing up uh, Elvis. I completely forgot to talk about the album cover. Um, the album cover is a black and white photo of Paul Simon smashing his bass on stage, but the font for London Calling exactly matches That's right. Elvis's uh, uh, like self titled album. Uh, probably from I bet I bet That's you it's right. from twenty years earlier, or whatever. Um, uh, twenty five years earlier. So uh, and not the last time we'll bring it up. Bring up Elvis tonight. But yes, good connection. And yeah, the 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 ad libs, the like he's crowing like a lost boy. Uh, for you Peter Pan heads out there. Um, Absolutely. There is definitely some Rufio on here. <laughs> Absolutely. Steve, are you calling London? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and yeah, that, that album cover is definitely an homage. It's a, uh, it's, it's good shit. And it makes sense because I feel like these guys, uh, this album's like a rebirth of some kind of rock and roll, as much as Elvis like helped give birth to another version of rock and roll. But this this opening track is just uh, it's just amazing. It's every time this album's easy to put on repeat. Um, there's a lot of songs in this record, but as soon as it's done, I like to listen to it more than once. And um, just the opening way that song starts with that dun 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 dun, dun and that bass, that thick bass. Just that that the, the bass line oh, of the song oh. is amazing. Yeah, so good. Yeah, the bass production, more rather. I mean, the way the song comes on, it makes me want to run out in the street and knock shit over and climb up the side of buildings. Um, that's that was probably what they intended. Um, it's just the, the production's great. The 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 marching just beat to it. Um, I I I think the bass line is quietly the star of this track with its sickness. It doesn't do much in some parts, and then it really walks in other parts and really gets going. Uh, yeah, Mark mentioned the the cat calls and whatnot. The Joe Stormer's great at that shit. The ad libs, the uh, I mean, in addition to the uh, now get this, you've also got the the Diamond Dogs esque, you know, ow 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 stuff going on, and that kind of adds that sense of dystopia to me. Um, yeah, it's a great great track. It's a classic track. It's got some nice little quick guitar solos. Uh, that way he, pr- he pr- a nuclear era. The way that he pronounces that is great. Um, yeah, I, I, I like everything about it. There's a th- there's a use too on this track and a lot of these tracks, a lot of clash tracks. There's like a controlled use of noise. I don't know how else to put it. Um, and it kind of reminds me of like Scary Monsters era David Bowie, where they just there's just a noisiness to some of the songs, but it's never overpowering. And it's kind of like a, a, a like a fifth instrument. I don't know, just like a general noisiness, unwieldiness, but still everything doesn't seem sloppy. Uh, it's a great track, and I'm going to bring up David Bowie a lot tonight. Believe it or not. No, I get it. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention it was the SOS signal that the uh, uh, song fades out at the end there. Yeah, I love that. I love that sound. That sound actually reminds me of a uh, Pink Floyd for some reason. But yeah, great song. Great song. There's gonna be a lot tonight, guys. I, I gotta just. I'm gonna have to apologize in advance. Tonight, there's gonna be like hot take. The song's great because it's, it's like I don't know. Nine of these tracks are classics. So anyhow, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And honestly, this might be one of my favorite songs of all time. Maybe a top three song of all time for me. This. This one just, just get, just, I just, I just get it. I just get it. 
you know what they said? Well, some of it was true. Like just his delivery on the whole thing. It's just so good. Makes me happy. I can't expand on it more than you have without just blabbering. Um, it's just a big, chunky, rousing track. Well, let's go to the next track. This is a cover song. Brand new Cadillac. probably has nothing to do with Elvis, but I do remember uh, Steve showing me like late, later era Elvis in Hawaii, throwing car keys out to the crowd. Oh, a brand new Cadillac. Brand new Cadillac. <laughs> so I'm sure this has nothing to do with that, but that's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I just love that. I love that fucking story. I mean, I need to see that footage because that just makes me smile. Uh, I was really hoping that was going to be in that Baz Luhrmann movie, right. but you know, no, that was like Kung Fu. That was like Kung Fu suit wearing Kung Fu suit wearing <laughs> Elvis. Uh, yeah. Brand new Cadillac. Uh, <laughs> so good. Uh, but um, <laughs> this, this song was written, written by Vince Taylor, who here's another Bowie connection. Vince Taylor was like one of the original uh, Bowie, like Ziggy inspirations. He was like, um, made a couple albums. He was very kind of like over the top and then like crash and burn hard. Like as far as like, uh, drugs and, and, um, just very public. And so it was definitely like Bowie has said he like Vince Taylor's experience, uh, inspired his Ziggy story. Um, so yeah, you got a song. It's about a girl got a new car and now she's free to leave her man and her man's starting to feel a little uh, like he doesn't have the control he had over his lady and the, the anxiety that comes with that. And um, Strummer added a few ad libs like balls to you and, and stuff like that. Balls to you, daddy. And uh, you've got yourself a little throwback jam. Steve, brand new Cadillac. Yeah, this song's great. Um, it's a cover, sure, but... It's still good. I mean, I was a uh, right around the time that I learned about the quality of the Clash. I was also in my rockabilly phase, and uh, definitely Joe Strummer has got some the rockabilly thing going on. Um, it was actually it was around that time too. I went I went to New York, and I found it was right after Joe Strummer died, and I found a great mural. Uh, somebody painted in the side of an alleyway. It said Joe Strummer you know, whatever year to 2002. And I took a photo of that and I still have a, I still have the actual photo of that. Anyhow, that was around the same time as my psychobilly phase. Anyways, uh, back to the point, <laughs> the brand new Cadillac is definitely in the, in those genres and inspiring those genres later. You can hear the bass line and the drum beats in this one, but this is a pure rock and roll song too. Uh, sure. It's a cover, but I mean, it's it's got a great guitar solo. And when I like the Clash, I mean, the rock part of the Clash is what gets me. I mean, they've got the Clash when they're rocking, like they do in this song and some other songs. There's like a dirty rock feel to it that I could like go through my records and be like, oh, their version of Brand New Cadillac kind of strokes the same itch as ACDC or Murder City Devils or even some Guns N' Roses. It's a it's pure rock and roll. And uh, it's also kind of the rock and roll still that you find down the street on E Street with the horns and the soul of it all. 
Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I like that they bring it. They, they do a lot of covers. They do a lot of them. I, I don't know if a lot of them are Americana style covers. I don't even know if you'd call this Americana, but it's classic rock and roll. Um, and, uh, it just reminds me that Joe Strummer, even though he's not from America, I feel like he's still, you'd find him in the same book of American rock heroes, like his Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and, and Bob Dylan and, and even Axl Rose. Um, the clash had a lot of just rock to him. And I think this song speaks to that. Uh, the drums in this track aren't doing a lot. And then all of a sudden they have quite a drive and to pick up the pace a little bit to the point where they're almost, there's some borderline double, double kick drum going on. Um, it's a good track. It's only two minutes long. And I like that they do this quick little cover. And I feel like what it is, is it's cleansing the palette of the quality of the first track, because the next track after this one is an all timer in my book. So they stick this little blast of rock and roll in there and it's perfectly placed. That's my opinion. Mark, what do you got? Uh, brand new Cadillac. Uh, as Marty McFly told the attendees at uh, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, your kids are going to love it. Um, it's a good one. I mean, uh, my ignorance again uh, thought that this was an original number. It was not. Um, and it's great. I mean, honestly, brand new Cadillac. It has some excellent guitar work. I love how it starts out like it's an engine starting. Bah, bah, oh you know the way that it kind of revs up um i I, th I think they capture that feeling of you know having a drag race on rebel without a cause set um we even uh get to hear about montgomery clift later on this record as well That's so true. fits into that 1950s um just feel to it what else was i going to say about this um but yeah, I mean, the fact that it exists at all and the fact that a classic record is not afraid to have a few covers on here, don't really see that too often on, on albums that are, you know, uh, of course the Beatles used to certainly dabble in covers, Rolling Stones, but as they got later in their career, they really kind of stopped doing that and they just did their own originals. But man, I because of how well they pull this off, I feel that going forward, um, if anyone was to cover this, like the Brian Setzer Orchestra, of course, covered this song. Oh, of course. Um, you know, I would immediately think, oh, they're covering a Clash song. They own this song now. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did. And, and speaking of covers, I did forget to mention that um, while they were kind of in their writer's block before this came out, they released an EP that had mostly re-recordings of old songs, but they had one of their biggest hits that I forgot to mention, which was uh, their cover of I Fought the Law, which is a truly righteous version of that song. That's a cool, that's a cool. Oh, cover. it's great. That's Again. A cool cover. Yeah. They plant their flag on that song and uh, practically own that one too. Yeah. But uh, that does. Leave... Kind of like how Eric Clapton did with I Shot the Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, that moves us into, as Steve mentioned, a, uh, a still stuck in kind of throwback zone sound wise in a great way. Uh, we get Jimmy Jazz. And they said, now, where's Jimmy Jazz? I said, he was here, but um, he said he went 
Jimmy Jazz, no doubt they were they were uh, exp- like kind of taking that walking baseline and and some of the riffing from the last track and giving a little bit more atmosphere, a little noir atmosphere, as we have a story about Jimmy Jazz, an outlaw, an outlaw who's um, trying to evade the police, and you've got a great use of Topper Heaton's uh, swing jazz style drumming. Um, and you've got, uh, this kind of bar room atmosphere, a lot of whistling baseline going for a walk, Mark, Jimmy jazz. What really stands out on this track? I mean, musically it's, uh, flawless. It's great. Um, it's a little jazzy number. It's played in the back door lounge. Um, probably right as we are recording this. Um, but Strummer's vocal performance, uh, he doesn't have time to articulate every word. Jimmy Jazz, Jazz, Jazz. You know, it's uh, singing it like a drunken uh, sailor. I like that. It's a good little quality. um, And it's a little story that's unfolding. Um, I guess Topper Heaton, when I was doing some research, he had a background in jazz. so there's certainly probably some influence on his drum work on here. Um, but man, uh, it's got a bluesy jazzy number that, I mean, if I was a clash fan, uh, organically at the time and they had just put out two, uh, pretty great punk records and now they're throwing this at me, I would be scratching my head, but man, do they pull it off? Pretty, pretty great. Um, cause there's a little bit of reggae in here as well. Uh, Jimmy Dredd, um, good little story. Sata Masagana, that's that's definitely throwing that in there. Good job. And then the fact that uh, Joe Strummer scats a little bit, um, it's it makes for a good stew. So Jimmy Jazz, good stuff. Steven, I know you got something to say. All right. Yeah, no, Jimmy Jazz is an old-timer. This is another one of those tracks that since I was introduced to the clash made it onto many a mixed mixtape set list. Um, I've always just liked the the laid back pace to this song. I, I, I like the way it kind of just glides in slowly. Um, just the, the laid back feeling to it can't be topped. And this track, the way it moves, the way it sounds, the, the, the joy of it kind of puts you in a good mood just hearing it. Um, I mean, that. I feel like the whole mood of this song is encapsulated by how he, you know, there's that, what's that, that line, like looks like a soldier dressed like a thief or whatever it is. The way he delivers that is great. And to Mark's point. Yeah. There's a lot of scatting and bebopping and, and this is, he does this a lot. Uh, Joe Strummer. He never colors out so far outside the lines that the songs are like, you're like, what's, what's going on here. But there's a lot of times where like he will take liberties and I don't know how he could perform some of these songs the same exact way twice um, because of the, the vocal deliveries. It's not a standard. This song is definitely wildly unique. It does not have a standard verse uh, delivery on it. Um, he's singing, he's scatting, he's talking. Uh, sometimes he's rhyming, sometimes he's not. But it doesn't make a difference because the song just makes me happy. Um, I love the whistling in the intro. Uh, it has just the right amount of horns. And I know there's a billion other artists between this band and, again, David Bowie, where the influences of these horns are coming in. 
But again, for me and what I listen to and my knowledge, is it a song like this? Like the use of horns reminds me of mid seventies, David Bowie. It reminds me of, um, that, that, you know, the, the pinups era going into young Americans with a little bit of even on, you know, Ziggy Stardust has got some horn use. It's like that. And it's got that same like production. Uh, definitely like this album, the production quality kind of is there with mid seventies glam to me at times, um, in a good way. Um, just the right amount of lo-fi analog, but still crystal clear production. If you could have both those, those things. Uh, I love this song very much. I love this song very, very much. And thank you for bringing up the horns. A group called the Irish horns will provide our horn work on this, which will, uh, certainly come into play on, on other songs as well. Um, but let's let's bring it to the next track. Hateful. Hateful is certainly a uh, cautionary tale about drug use, addiction, and the cost of addiction compared to. Like, like when you think about losing friends compared to the fleeting escape that you get um, using the drugs. Uh, so um, this one is a, despite that kind of dark subject matter, it's kind of an upbeat, catchy uh, song. It's got that big, one of the most catchy hooks on the album. Anything I want, he gives it to me. Anything I want, he gives it, but not for free. And it's hateful and it's paid for. And I'm grateful to be nowhere. It's a great what a great hook. And it get just gets gets in your head. Um this is a fun song somehow. Uh what do you think about this track, Steve? Um Yeah, that this song <laughs> this song is interesting. It's a good it's a great track. And the lyrical content is way heavier than the sound of the song. It's it's upbeat. It, it moves by quick. If you didn't know what he was singing about, you'd be like, hey, this is a fun track, but it's not. Um, yeah, it talks about, you know, losing friends to drug use, possibly Sid Vicious, and it's discussing heroin addiction. And, uh, it's just, uh, it's really upbeat for such a heavy topic. Uh, there's what in the, in the very opening of it, is that an organ? What is that? What is that? What is that? When it first starts, you know what I'm talking about? Could be, uh, we, the, they had Mickey Gallagher playing organ on this album. So very much could be, mm. could be that going on. But, uh, the, uh, the, the, anything I want, he gets it from me. Delivery is great. There's some call and response going, love panning in between each speaker between uh, Mick and Joe at times, which is fun. And, uh, the, anything I want, uh, kind of rises to a crescendo in the last seconds of the song. It's a good, it's a good blast of a song. There's some fun backup vocals too, like when he's when he's talking about uh, you know, this year I've lost some friends, some friends, like the the backup the backup yeah. vocals is kind of kind of cool. That's the kind of the callers I'm talking about. That 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 stuff yeah, is good. Exactly, exactly. Mark, any anything to add? Oh yeah, I mean this song is great. Um, uh, incredibly catchy. Uh, even though it has some darker uh, lyrical concepts here. I mean, it sounds like Katrina and their waves in terms of its uh, bounciness. Um, but uh, yeah, that, uh, that whole track or that whole um, section of 
the the chorus, like you said, Eric, was is just phenomenal. Um, it it gets stuck in your head pretty quickly. Um, one thing worth mentioning is I really like the fact that it's like a conversation. Well, I got a friend who's a man. Who's a man? What mm-hmm. man? Yeah. Like uh, you have that back and forth kind of call and response interplay between probably him and Mick. It's great. It's great. Um, this year I've lost some friends. Some friends. What friends? Uh, I just. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, that, um, and that's like a that's not like a total like studio wizardry thing at all. It's just them being creative and you're like, oh, that sounds great. It's like a little trick. Yeah. Like we could do that on this podcast if we wanted to to be that organized. Like that little. That little just flourish is a the clash difference. I like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be there, but they were like, to Steve's point, let's add that in there and just kind of make this a little bit bouncier. And it sounds like a, it's a conversation. Um, I like it. It's it's a good little trick. Hateful um, doesn't the title doesn't quite match the uh, the the song uh, melody, but man, great song. All right, and that moves us into the next track, Rudy Can't Fail. One of our uh, uh, most, uh, I guess, respected barristers in the country, Rudy Giuliani, used this song in his campaign uh, <laughs> and was asked politely to stop using. Did he really <laughs> stop using this song? <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> uh, oh boy! Oh, his hair was. Uh, yeah, not that he's ever definitely melting off his face that day. Not that he's ever listened to the Clash, but I'm sure he has. Yeah, what uh, what is it? Yeah, what is it with that strain? Of, I mean, I guess it's a tradition dating back to born in the USA with Reagan. So right. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, More of that. I, yeah, using, yeah, you know the the Tom Petty estate had to tell the other guy to quit using. I won't back down. It's like, what do you know? Yeah, but like, yeah. in what world does Rudy Giuliani have like any? Like, there is not one Clash song that isn't about someone like him in a derogatory way. Like, there's exactly. no reason. Exactly. It even. It's, yeah, it's uh, insane. We could probably do an entire episode on politicians who pick songs <laughs> that the artist just has absolutely disgust for. In our in our youth, um, in our youth before we all turned 40, we would have done a top five of that. Uh, right. now yeah. uh, everything hurts and just trying to get this project done with is the main point. So no new episodes, unless they're about the Ninja Turtles. But uh <laughs> I wanted to say something before we move on from that. Uh, yeah. So who sent that letter to them to stop? Was it the, like the estate of Joe Strummer? I mean, or was it the, the, uh, the drummer for Green Day? Just, has the, honestly. Rudy can't, the, the Rudy can't fail cafe in Emeryville that he opened, which oh. I learned that existed. Oh, I, Trey, I Trey cool. There now. Trey cool. Uh, no, Mike Durnt. So I guess it's the bass player. Oh, the that's bass the bass player. player. Yeah. Mike Durnt. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Interesting. 
Uh, well, I don't know who did. It might've just been Capitol records or whoever put this out. Um, but, uh, listen, this song is, this, this is one of my favorite songs in the album. Uh, it's very ska. Um, turns out like, I don't have a lot of patience for ska music, except I really like the two tone British ska of like the specials. Uh, obviously this stuff like, um, that, I don't know that I appreciate. I don't know what it is. Uh, it get, uh, it gets to be ska without, without being like a uh, mustard plug and 15 horns blasting at you. Um, but this song is, this song is great. Whenever, uh, whenever anyone talks about ska, uh, I always go back to that onion headline. <laughs> ska band members outnumber the audience that they're playing to. <laughs> so fucking funny. <laughs> and yeah, fuck ska, by the way. Also, uh, if you haven't seen the new, uh, Nicolas Cage as Dracula movie Renfield, which actually was a lot more fun than I expected. There is a great running ska joke in that movie. Just going to throw that out there. I, I do recommend that film. Um, but anyways, uh, Rudy is about the rude boys of Jamaica from the 1960s. It was kind of like they're like Jamaica's versions of, they were like dance hall and reggae punks. Um, and uh, it would end up birthing the ska genre. Um, and you just kind of have a song about them, like kind of sticking it to their elders. And that's what it's about with a big swooping horn, horny chorus and, uh, a true duet between Joe Strummer and Mick Jones as they're both singing, kind of going back. But even though everything in the fiber of my being is pretty much against ska music, uh, I, I just don't care for it. I mean, I've tried, I've, I mean, uh, when it had a resurgence um, with like the mighty, mighty boss tones and all that other stuff that came out in the late nineties, I was not on that train. Um, and, but with that said, just, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, this song is great. I went to the market to realize my soul. Cause what I need, I just don't have first. They curse and they press me till I hurt. We say Rudy can't fail. Unbelievable chorus. Unbelievable. Yeah. Bring that, bring that back as much as you want to. Um, just the constant reminder of Rudy can't fail and um, how he delivers Rudy. It's uh, obviously it has something to do with the whole rude boys. Uh, that whole thing. Drink and brew for breakfast. Um, I don't think I've ever tried having a beer for breakfast. I don't think I've ever drank a beer before noon. Um, I might have to give that a shot just to see if it's all that it cracks up to be. I bet Steven and you, Eric have definitely had a beer for breakfast. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just know it. I feel it in my bones. You've never, you've never had a hair of the dog to beat you. Never had a hair of the dog. I feel like I have to just ride the wave in order to get it out of me. Interesting. But yeah. I know. That'd be the only reason. I know. That'd I be definitely could have. I could have tried that this morning. I, I'll tell you that. Either I, you know, it's, it's either the hair of the dog, or if you're on uh, a long vacation, and you no, know, no rules, rules check out at the door. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the reasons why. Um. But yeah, Rudy can't fail. It's great. 
It's it's great. It's a fun celebratory song, and it seems to have some uh, sprockets and springs flying out of it too. Um, there's some there's some uh, sounds happening in the background. Yeah, no, this is this is it's this record kind of has a rhythm to it of like a classic song followed by a really good song followed by a classic song, and now we're we're back to another really classic song. Rudy can't fail is another one that's been on many of my playlists throughout the years. Another song that makes me happy. Um, you know, yeah, when it comes to ska music, there's uh, there, there's this kind of ska, and like I I went through a phase where I really like the band the Slackers, which I would say are descendants of this kind of ska but yeah mark you're more referring to like the skank and pickle kind of nonsense um yeah yes yes and like the two-tone is... stuff that i'm talking about is like the the kind of uk jamaican immigrants to to london like doing a much more pared but down the, yeah the the boss tones the real big fish that stuff that was the whole why does most ska bands have just one person on the stage just dancing get off the stage you're not contributing anything part of the part of the culture mark you gotta get you gotta do pick it up 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 yeah (laughs) but uh, you can't deny the horns in this track Uh, they're incredible um and i like how it kind of takes a second to get itself organized uh, but once everything falls into place with that initial went to the market, I'm like, oh my god, here we're this is just beautiful. Uh, it opens up the whole song; it's just so perfect, joyful. Um, yeah, one more, one more thing. Just the way he says, "What I need, I just don't have." The way he sings and the that, guitar, the gu- guitar twangs. Wow, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's great. Yep, it's great. It's great. Well, this goes into another, uh, well, definitely one of the bigger clash hits, Spanish Bombs. Spanish songs in Andalusia, the student sides in the days of 39. Oh, please leave the vendetta open. Spanish Bombs um, basically uh, is doing kind of like a a uh you know describing this but really talking about that and it's you know the tourist influx to spain in the 80s or i guess this would have been the late 70s and then um while also like comparing it to the spanish civil war um the uh the the poets who were anti-fascist that were killed and dead um and uh just and crafts a really tight pop song around that along with some uh, singing in Spanish uh, and it's got this fuzzy ass bass line that never stops uh, Steve what do you think about Spanish Bombs yeah this is another thing now we got back to back classic songs um, I want you forever I want you oh my heart uh, what was that yo te quiero yo finito yo te cuerda oh my corazón which he repeats in the song this song is great it's in this song is kind of in the tradition of a moon over Marin by the dead Kennedys, where it's a pretty sounding punk song. It has a heavy point, but still like I could even hear East Bay Ray from the dead Kennedys kind of playing this guitar part. Like the guitar part, there's the, there's the acoustic strumming, which is great, but then there's kind of like this like exotic guitar, like on the beach, 
kind of lick going on with the electric guitar. It, it's, it's beautiful. And along that mix with the uh, the downstrumming on the acoustic guitar, and you've got this organ kind of buried in the mix. The song has buried treasures. On top of that, there's these vocal harmonies between Mick and Joe going on. Um, I love it. It's an all-timer. It's uh, it, it, it rocks. It sounds romantic, and it's catchy. It's like many other songs in this album, but this one's more of a straight-ahead rock song that just kind of has like an exotic vibe to it. I dig it. Uh, and he's like, it's gonna. They're gonna like you're gonna dance to this song, but you gotta remember you're dancing on the graves of dead anti-fascist poets. Uh, much like the Clash, you can't just can't just have your fun. You gotta think too. Mark, what do you think about Spanish Bombs? I mean, Spanish Bombs is uh, a great song. It starts out like almost like an Americana type Tom Petty style type song, and then it just goes into what um, is that Clash style. Uh, it definitely gives me a little bit of a history lesson about you know the Spanish Civil War. Um, and I learn a few um, Spanish phrases. Yo te quiero infinito. Yo te acurada o mi corazón. Um, I did not take Spanish in high school, as you just heard. Um, so the fact that, uh, you know, we've got some culture happening here. I'm learning history and a foreign language. This should at least count for at least maybe two high school credits. Um but it doesn't, but it does count for a very good clash song. Um, I enjoy it. And I feel that Joe Strummer uh, and most bands that really kind of get like the the lack of a better word that are considered woke um, certainly try to teach their audience a little something. um, So that way we don't repeat it again. Uh, And I believe that the city of Granada um, dedicated a city square to Joe Strummer. Um, They called it the Joe Strummer Plaza. Um, And he himself visited that in 1984. And Granada will always be uh, said in a um, uh, Robert Downey Jr. voice from Natural Born Killers. <laughs> I was there when the shit was down in Granada. <laughs> Batonga, 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 Batonga. Batonga. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so good. So good. All right. Well, uh, I, love, I love that in that movie that just Tommy Lee Jones stepped right out of Batman Forever and into that movie. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Let's, yeah. speaking of movies, the movies, let's go on to the right profile. As alluded to by Mark earlier on, this song uh, name drops Montgomery Cliff and is a, is actually about him. This is another uh, song about um, uh, really just I mean, addiction. It's just it, it's definitely a throwback song. Looking at like one of those those sad golden golden age of Hollywood stories, Montgomery Cliff. Um, it was it was dubbed the longest suicide in in Hollywood history as his like descent into alcohol and, and drug abuse leading to um, uh, him getting in a car accident and then dying 10 years later. Um, uh, bummer. What a bummer. Uh, but listen. Everybody says they're all right. 
favorite track, but Mick Jones pounding away at the piano is really cool. It's not, it, it's, it's an absolutely fine song that gives us a little reprieve from absolute bangers because we're going to get another one in a minute. Uh, Mark, what do you think about the right profile? I picture um, Joe Strummer running into the studio uh, to Mick Jones and saying, I've got a great idea for a song. Here, let's uh, check it out. It's going to be about the tragic death of an actor that we uh, really love, um, bisexual apparently, and at that point in his career, uh, you know, that was almost uh, putting a death curse on him. I remember my dad was like, that guy was gay. I'm like, no more gay than Marlon Brando. So let's calm down. <laughs> and Marlon Brando was in The Godfather, Runs Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Joe Strummer runs in and then Mick Jones says, well, I've got an idea for that. Let's make it sound like we're having a birthday party um, because that's what this is. This is a, sounds, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so like happy and fun times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the horn section on here is having a great time. Oh yeah. Uh, even though we're talking about someone mangled in a car ca- crash and having his face so fucked up that people are like, I think that's Montgomery cliff, but I'm not so sure. Um, so yeah, a uh, good song. I actually like this song quite a bit. Um, it's not one of my favorites on the, on the album by any means, but I think that it's a highlight. Oh, it's a weird, it's a weird uh, one. Yeah, that It's a weird one that just wedges in just fine where it is on the album. Steve, what do you think? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. On an album full of all time classics, this song is merely good which is great. It's a good song. Sometimes songs can just be good. Uh, this is another one where the kind of the vibe and the production and the horns take me back to mid seventies, David Bowie. Yeah. It, the highlight for me is this one is another one that has like freewheeling Joe Strummer delivery, which is fun. Um, the song's great, has great horns, but I think it could be half as long. It's only four minutes long, but it feels like 10. Um, not in a bad way. Just this is this and one other track on this album, which do not bring down the letter grade uh, are the two times where I'm like, all right, next song, please. Well, th- there that's are it. shorter songs that are better on here. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to uh, one of their big hits lost in the supermarket. I wasn't born so much as I fell out. Nobody seemed to notice me. We had a hedge back home in the summer. And so th- this one, uh, we got we got lost in the supermarket. We've got Mick Jones has written this just absolute, like he's basically premeditating the 80s, like pop rock song, reverby guitars, um, huge drums, uh, big toms going on. And you've got uh, two things are happening here. Um, you've got like a kind of like a kid who's lost in a supermarket and trying to like grow up and figure out the world. And then you've also got somebody that's being absolutely just like drowned in consumerism and um, just kind of having fun with both themes and both ideas. And they do really work well together in the song uh, while also making a, like just a, just a hell of a hell of an eighties pop rock track. Um, but, but Steve, what do you think about lost in the supermarket? Well, first, I think you got it wrong. 
Joe Strummer wrote it and Mick sang it, right? That's what that's what my research shows. Or yeah, actually, it. I think I cut off. I think I cut off my copy and paste job here. I think you're probably right. Okay. Yeah, no, Joe Strummer wrote this song. And he pulled some of the lyrical content about hearing people fighting and stuff when he was a kid and hearing people fight upstairs. And then later, he and his girlfriend lived nearby a supermarket and he remembered just going in there and being dazed, like trying to, was like, I'm, what am I here for? The fluorescent lights. And you guys know what that feeling's like. There's no way you haven't had that feeling. I have that feeling more often when I go to the grocery store than not, where I go there for something and I'm just like, why am I here? This is overwhelming. That's just like, apparently that's been supermarkets as tale as old as time. Um, so I can really relate to that feeling. And yeah, he just knew that the, uh, to this upbeat song, Eric, that basically was a future vision of so many hits in the eighties and beyond of its style and its briskness and its danceableness. He uh, said, I can't sing this one. Uh, Mick, you got to sing it. And so Mick Jones sang it. Um, so that's what happened there. And again, on many mixtapes, many set or many playlists, the song is an all timer. This is probably along with the songs I mentioned earlier, like uh, you know Jimmy Jazz and Ruby Won't Fail. This is a track where I was like, "Holy crap, the Clash might be the greatest band of all time" because of some of these songs. How do you have this many great songs in one album? It should be illegal. But this track specifically, it's a uh, it's proto pulp. I can see Pope Pope making this song. It's got a bass line that gallops as hard as any Steve Harris from Iron Maiden bass line goes. And then when the bass line isn't ga galloping, it's dancing uh, with the wonderful verses. It's, 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 it's awesome. Um, some of the lyrics really resonate with me in this one. That line, I wasn't born as much as I fell out. Uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if I was planned. I like that line a lot. Um, this song could open and close movies, probably has. It's uh, an all-timer that you can definitely dance to. And back when I used to go to dance nights again, you know, that's some of these songs I wish I could have heard when I was in more youthful scenarios. Uh, I participated more in them with these songs playing, if that makes any sense. Pretty goddamn sure when I was going to some of the dance nights in Sacramento at your press clubs and your old Ironsides, the Lost in the Supermarket would have been put on by the DJ. It's just a great, great danceable track. And it has heart, a weird, it has a weird sense of melancholy. It 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 feels very pure. Um, and like, yeah, like I think many bands in the 1980s heard this and they're like, oh, we can do something like this. And they did. Great track. I'm sure Mark agrees with I do agree with you. Um, it is a great track. Boston the Supermarket, uh, as the uh, gentleman from Miller's Crossing would say, Topper's definitely giving us the hi-hat here. Um, it's it's really good. Um, actually, you know what? The whole rhythm section is buying lunch on this one. Um, Paul has some uh, definite bass, uh, kind of not solos, but they give the bass player a little something uh, kind of in the, in the back half of the song. Um, Mick Jones again, and a, a revelation. I was like, Holy shit. This isn't Joe Strummer singing this song. <laughs> Cause I can now say that like, Oh yeah, they do sound a little different. Um, they give Mick sounds a little more softer. Yeah. I was going to say when they need a little softer touch, they, they have Mick Jones come on. Yeah. And he's got yeah. a little bit of a higher register, you know, very similar 
Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, this is a good one. This was always like talking about consumerism, but, uh, you know, Trojan horse inside a really danceable beat. Um, it's, it's good stuff. I could swing my little booty to this one. You know, probably really like this track. Probably have. There's a part towards the end where the song's about done and they kind of just like start just kind of tailing off, but. Uh, the guitar strums goes down and then the bass line does a little doop 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 it's uh just big. yep so that's what i was talking about and i think uh um the drum kicks back in or something like that yeah. in order to kind of like speed us back up into the yeah a there's little, a good little, little like, fake out little bridge fake out there towards a little fake out yeah, yeah those and that's yeah. what like this album that stuff doesn't sound rehearsed at all they kept it on tape and it just sounds great it's just uh, it's awesome that, yeah, you get yeah. a lot of spontaneous moments on this on this record, which is a lot of fun. Um, and that follows up to a, uh, a little hard hitting song, another another uh, kind of anti capitalist track. Oh my god! Cl- How can they have clamp- this many good songs in one record? This is stupid. This is <laughs> clamp like one, down. two, three. Like the next, the next, the next three songs are all great. All right, start talking about them. We will teach our twisted speech to the unbelievers. We will train our blue-eyed men to the unbelievers. Turks and fights the same, but I say double and again, I'm not. Clamp down. All right. Uh, clamp down, you get... Uh, you're looking at um, basically Joe Strummer is here singing. Uh, you've got, and you got a little Mick Jones peppered in there as well. It's just the grind of working under like the capitalism machine. Um, and it's compared like your business to an oppressive government. Um, and it's basically a call to arms to fight the power, to stand up against the status quo. It's a very cool, um, protest song. Uh, it's big, it's chunky. You got to work hard in Harrisburg. Um, Definitely. Mark, clamp down. Clamp down. Uh, in contention for maybe my favorite song off the record or my second favorite song off the record. Um, yeah, you would think London Calling, the self-titled track, would be the one. It's, I mean, it's in there, but uh, clamp down. I just love everything that's going on here. Everything in the kitchen sink is in this song. Um, I love the little voice that he puts on in these days of evil presidentes. He only does it once. It's just like kind of, he's putting on this little character. Um, I love it. And not only is it railing against capitalism. Yeah. I'm working hard in Harrisburg, which is in Pennsylvania near the three mile Island disaster, where obviously nuclear error is uh, a common theme here that we're going in the wrong direction playing with things that we shouldn't be playing with but he also says working hard in petersburg so petersburg is now known as leningrad um or stalingrad rather um over in communist russia at this point so he's not really saying like the capitalist uh like economic system is any worse than maybe even communism um maybe it's just all of these systems that we live under uh are working for the clampdown, working to control you. 
Um, and I really like that section. You grew up and you calm down and blah, blah, blah. So you got someone to boss around. It makes you feel big now. Um, it's kind of the American capitalist dream to go kind of against capitalism here is that you want to work your way up into a management role. So you're not the one being told what to do. You can tell others what to do and you don't have to work as hard. Um, and I feel that that captures that presence. Oh, it makes you feel big now. But is that truly what we all need to be working towards? We should all be working towards what's later in, discussed in this is, you know, do stuff that you actually enjoy. I think that uh, is in the song Death or Glory, which, spoiler alert, is also in contention for my favorite song off the record. Um, but clamp down it's great i don't know i mean it's the get along get along those little ad libs i'm there i'm here for it i'm i'm subscribing to this newsletter so great job love this song yeah i'm just gonna echo the same thing well i'm trying to remember we talked about an album and at one point where there was an artist and for one verse he sang like a vampire <laughs> and then the rest of the song he did normal I can't remember who it was at all. It's going to bug me. But Joe Strummer definitely does that on this one, too. It's like, why did you do that for that one song or that one verse? Um, it cracks me up. Uh, it's it's going to bother me, though. The, who was it that sang like a vampire for one verse on another artist? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, no. Like... Probably one, gonna, probably one of it's my... It's got to be in this season. Probably one of mine. Be, probably one of my that? picks... Or, or could have been Bowie. Maybe. Could have been Bowie. Bowie would vamp from time to no, time. Uh, it might have been Bowie. I don't know. We talked about it too. We're like, yeah, he sounds like a vampire for like one line. <laughs> he literally like, what is he doing there? Um, anyways. Yeah, this song is great. Uh, it's just, it's a perfectly danceable rocker. Uh, but it's still some other got that. Uh, it's got some guitar work that sounds like the electric factories come into town and crazy organ work. And there's bongo drums and rising action. And there's so much more going on in this song than what you first think. Uh, it kind of goes into an extended jam at the end, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. The song's only less than four minutes long. Um, and it never straight. Like there are some parts where it kind of just, there's some rave outs that never strays too far from the skeleton of the structure of the song. Um, I love the song. Yeah, it's another great one that banner guitar squeal that they that they do is great. The the drum beat is great. Um, I don't know. It's it's a da 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 clamp down. It's awesome, awesome track. And um, yeah, two things. One to Mark said, yeah, you know, unless you become the owner of wherever you work, I don't care. How many levels you rise and how many people you try to step on, someone's always going to be stepping on you. So find something more important than that to be your uh, point of your life. And um, I don't know why I bring it up here, but at some point I had to bring it up tonight. The Cure definitely had to be Clash fans, right? Like, you know, when you get past the gothiness of The Cure, so much of like the song structures and the experimentation remind me of The Cure. Do you guys get that at all? hundred percent. The Cure is a yeah. definite post-punk band in their early days. And so seeing like shades of Joy Division mixed with The Clash, uh, it's inevitable that you'd come to that connection. Yeah. Um, like this song isn't the best example of that, but I just at some point in my notes, I, I wrote that down to bring it up. Um, 
Well, I think Anyhow, it's great, also how, how they track. do their like rave outs that you're talking about. Like that's probably it. You wouldn't yeah. necessarily do like big, like solo pieces in their songs, but there would be like, you know, a little moment where they're, they get jammed out, but they keep it very concise and they get back to business. Um, but Clampdown is really good. Uh, when I say chunky guitar, actually, I just shared this with you guys in our writer's room today, but there's a great, there's a great, like, uh, I don't know if it was like rock and roll hall of fame or whatever, where Bruce Springsteen's playing London calling and he's doing this, the like wide arm. And by the way, Bruce Springsteen rolls his sleeves the same way Joe Strummer does. Just, just a little thing I yeah. noticed. Uh, no, those guys, but, those guys were definitely, they, they were definitely from the same factory. Uh, yeah, but the big chunky guitar guitar hits. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And the, the big chunky guitar hits, like this song is one of the best examples of that too. Just, just uh, every strum down just feels like a stomp by Fifty Boots. It's great. Um, but that takes us into a moody track, Guns of Brixton. front door how you gonna run with your hands in the air or on the trigger of your gun uh this is a paul simmons first singing like this is his first contribution apparently according to the west way to the world documentary he would bring songs to the band every now and then very timid they would make fun of him they were always reggae songs this is no different but this is is a so he was the ringo of the yeah. of the clash yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes yes uh but instead of like songs about like uh, undersea creatures uh, singing. Uh, no, he was, uh, you know, bring the reggae political tracks. But this one, this one had teeth and they knew it and they wanted him to sing it. And you can tell he's, he doesn't have the range the other singers have, but you know, it's good and it, it fits the mood of the track. It's got a bass line that will, uh, that will uh, send you to Kingston and back. And, um, you know, a very like definitely tying into that post-apocalyptic oppressive government feel the rest of it has. Um, I really do like this track. Uh, what do you think about it, Steve? Yeah. I mean, Christ, this is yet another one. This is quite possibly one of the coolest songs ever written. Like this is a cool song. And yeah, it's fun that the Ringo of the band sang it, uh, by the way, Octopus's garden is a great song. Um, and much like Octopus's Garden, this song is a feast for the ears. There's there's a lot going on in each speaker, but it's never overwhelming. Right down to that well-placed boing instrument. Like, I don't know what the hell it is. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's a boing. There's a, there's oh, yeah. a what, the, there is a There's a name <laughs> for that instrument. It's like a piece of wood with like a metal ball, and the metal ball dang, dingles when you hit it. I don't know what it's called, but it definitely happens. Yeah, this is, this is just... It's a fun, cool song. It's kind of um, kind of a future vision of that song off of the uh, Rock the Casbah album that uh, what's her face? Combat Rock. 
Yeah, call oh, me uh, rock. But what's that song yeah. that? Straight to hell. Straight to hell. It's kind of a future vision of Straight to Hell. I think. Um, I think they're cousins. But uh, also, not the first time I'll bring this, or not the last time I'll bring this up tonight. We've got what sounds like Slipknot levels of percussion on this track. There's just a lot of falling sounds and things being pounded on. Uh, all that's missing is the clown with his baseball bat and his keg. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good, it's a fun song. Mark, are you getting Slipknot vibes from Guns of Brixton? <laughs> I'm just saying the amount of percussion. It's like sometimes it sounds like there's ten guys banging on things in some of these songs in the back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is, I mean, wow! I never I'd love, got I'd that. Love, I'd, I'd love to hear Slipknot cover "Wrongum Boyo." <laughs> <laughs> um. The Guns of Brixton, though, like if a song could influence a whole director's style of films, uh, that that must have happened with Guy Ritchie. Um, this this song is good. Um, I immediately think of his first two uh, first two films because it just has that like pot smoke kind of um, seedy underbelly of London feel to it, um, and again. No idea that this was the bass player singing the song. I thought this was once again Joe Strummer doing like one of his little bits. Um, and sure enough, it pulls out this great song that certainly has some reggae and dub uh, tendencies. And uh, yeah, this, I can smell this song, if that makes any sense. Sure. It smells like damp rain and weed. So I had a hacky sack. Yes. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, no, this song is great. I, I really do like this song a lot. I think it, it it's one of the most atmospheric tracks on here. Um, and I just echo what you guys said. Uh, I think it's quality and, and a great first outing for Paul Simmon. He would go on and, and uh, uh, he would have a band called Havana 6am uh after the clash um that was like its roots rock band that he sang on and he grows as a singer and he's got this one song called reach the rock To Mark's point, uh, the Snatch soundtrack has specials, and it has uh, also the Stranglers on it, as well as 10CC. As, yes, Dreadlock Holiday by 10CC. So that's it all. Because uh, I don't like reggae. I love it. Yeah. So uh, the this song. Uh, do you guys, you guys, do you guys know what? Do you know what record label released the Snatch soundtrack? Uh, Parlophone. I have no idea. TVT. Oh, oh there it is. Tele- TV two television tunes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, listen. The Guns of Brixton was uh, has such that catchy bass line that was sampled in the Cypress Hill song uh, that featured Tim uh, Tim Armstrong from Rancid, who plays and sings a little bit in the background on the song called "What's Your Number." Uh, not necessarily recommending that. It's just very interesting. But T- 
Tim Armstrong from Rancid would take that. And about, at this point, I want to say about 10 to 12 years ago, Tim Armstrong produced an entire album for Jimmy Cliff. It was Jimmy Cliff's resurgence album. Rebirth is what it was called. And Tim Armstrong plays on all the songs. And it's basically like Life Won't Wait era rancid, but Jimmy Cliff singing. And uh, he covers uh, this song. How you gonna go? Shut down on the pavement or waiting on that row. You can crush us, you can bruise us, but you'll have to answer too. So um, I feel like that kind of closed the loop on a lot of stuff for Tim Armstrong and Jimmy Cliff. So very cool. Uh, I would recommend checking that out. Um, but then let's move on to the next track. We've got, now we're on to side three. This is a double album, so we're flipping the disc. Wrong Boyo. another cover song um the clive alfonso uh and the band the rulers performed it first you've got a nick cave regular stagger lee shows up and you've got a song about a uh uh basically a uh you got a life of crime and how thieving will do you wrong and you know basically treat your neighbor with respect this one has that some of that great organ work we were talking about and uh Mm -hmm. It's another, and even though it starts as like this big buildup, it ends up becoming a ska track. It's like an old rock and roll buildup, and then it turns into a ska, a perfect two tone ska, ska track. Uh, Mark, what do you think about Wrong and Boyo? We definitely see some skanking on this one. Um, it's uh, not bad. Uh, I actually do enjoy this song, even though every fiber of my being, like I said before, is very resistant to anything that would. Uh, tell me to pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. The song definitely doesn't explicitly tell me that, but horn-wise, the horns are definitely telling me that. Um, so before I... It all does of say, take it back, take it back, take it back, though. I, th- I do think it says that in here. <laughs> you might. So <laughs> close enough. Handguns and take it backs. Um, so I don't know. Wrong and Boyle, you do get that uh, Stagger Lee story with uh, less ratio of fucking boys assholes. Um, but we still get that same story. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, staggeredly. Um, but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I honestly did not know that this was a cover. Um, I thought this was just, um, the clash flexing a muscle and, um, they do flex that muscle. I just didn't know that they needed to have someone else write the song. Wrong and Boyo. It's actually a highlight of the album. It's good. Anything that says Boyo, you know, it's soccer hooligans. Knocking over dustbins in Shaftesbury uh, is certainly occurring. Did you say dustbins? <laughs> dustbins, rubbish bins in Shaftesbury. That's funny you said that because I'm about to name, I'm about to name check a dustbin band. Um, yeah, this song is again from the 
high quality Jimmy Jazz file. It's a fun track. It's definitely got a flavor of the world of this band that we're living in, but it's definitely yeah more of a Scott song. I mean, this fucking song could like be a Benny Hill fucking video. Like if you sped everything up and they're running around. And that reminds me, it reminds me of like, you know, this is proto blur, like blur country home style blur. Like I could trace it all the way back to this, this stuff. I imagine that everything's like sped up really fast. And there's like, you know, cops tripping over themselves, trying to catch the clash over on the run. That's what I hear of when I hear this, this track. Um, it's just goofy and fun and fast paced. It actually is a future vision to the Pogues Fiesta. A lot of similarities between this and the song Fiesta by the Pogues. A great song, if you haven't heard it. Fun song. And what, what album is that there's on? There's a big connection Steve? there. That's on oh, If sorry. I Should Fall From Grace From God. Their, okay. Their, their best album. Not the one, but no, there's a connection there. Joe Strummer, did he join the Pogues or did he produce the Pogues? I'm, I'm following tonight. He did. He he produced and joined them as a as a session player for I think yeah. Rum Sodomy and Lash. It was kind of yeah, like Rum Sodomy and Lash is a good album, and the next one is kind of their uh, the, the, it's their Sandinistas into the Cut the Crap era for the Pogues. But uh, yeah, they have they cross paths there, and uh, there's definitely some similarities in what they appreciated. But check out that song Fiesta. You'll see how it's the same kind of vibe. It's a great song. I love it. I'll. I'll probably put it on tonight when we're done talking here. Um, the stars of this song are the horns and the organ, of course, and there's a great organ solo. Rongamboyo. Yeah, I think I, and I think this is a testament to, you know, when two-tone ska can be done right. Uh, this is great. Also check out ghost town by the specials. Another, another example. Uh, but that next track is uh a heavy one death or glory yeah, this is, uh, seriously this is like borderline should be uh there uh, i mean you, sh- you should not have this many good songs on one record this is absolutely absurd they they there was something in the in the oh. punch uh in wessex london wessex there was something in the punch This is basically Strummer. This is, and this is a true, like, this is where you get that Strummer and Springsteen connection. Like, they both kind of write, they, they write uh, personal tracks that anybody, whatever walk of life you come from, can relate to. And, um, yeah, I mean, Strummer gets a little bit more political, although, although Springsteen is very political, too. But um, this is really just that, like, yeah, Jesus perspective. <laughs> A little yeah. political. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just, yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. I know. But, uh, but, uh, I did put in my notes that this is their boss track. Like, it's, it's big. It's built for a stadium. Um, and, uh, uh this is like, uh, Strummer doing some folk hero shit. And there's some more crow squawks in this. Um, and, uh, you got a story about a, uh, you got first of all one of the most catchy hooks on the album, and that just feels like a 
well lived in huge rock chorus like it's it's big um and this is basically looking at the responsibilities of adulthood and how when you're young you're stubborn and how that can like kind of fuck you up and that's really what it's about um i mean uh, at its core uh, but and you also have a great line like uh, he who fucks nuns will later join the church which is i appreciate <laughs> Steve, what do you think about Death or Glory? Oh, yeah. This song is de- Deliver This Song with Maximum Shout Alongs at Concerts. I wrote. Um, the song is very pure. And, uh, yeah, everything you said about it, like you can, you can relate to this. Anybody can relate to this kind of thing. Um, it's, it's, it, like, and I, and I, and part of when they were writing it, like you said, Eric, I, I, you know, they take their experiences and they broaden it so everybody can relate to it. But I think also like the the band being in transition and becoming like what do they want to be, what do they want to become, compared to what everybody else is doing out there. There's some of that going on. Um, I I I, I really love this track. Uh, that opening, the down 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 down. That's like an all time good rock and roll uh, guitar riff. And I like that at the end when you, you know, I love that you think it's over. You think the song is over. It fades out really quickly and they come back up for another build up to clo- one more chorus because they know. Like, I really think they were like, ah, that's it. No, no. Another chorus. This song is that special. And they all come in and rock out the chorus one more time. Uh, it's got some wonderful, subtle guitar noodling at points. Uh, that you, It's not in the forefront, but you can hear it. And the lyric that i love is the delivery of from every dingy basement on every dingy street every dragging hand clap over every dragging beat it's just the beat of time the beat that must go on if you've been trying for years well you've we've already heard your song and uh, the way he delivers it is great this song's awesome awesome song all timer yeah i agree i mean honestly um hearing you kind of talk about it more has me more uh, I feeling in my bones, this is my favorite song off the record, which is wild because the title of the song death or glory, it seems like such a goofball. Every punk is standard issued this tattoo somewhere on their body. Um, but it's fine. I mean, like, uh, the way when you kind of dig into the lyrics, it's not your typical punk song about either standing firm for like your principles and want to be, you know, get that glory, uh, within your peers and your, um, kind of, I don't know, culture. Um, this kind of like throws a little kind of cold water on that. It's like, um, a little more cynical. It's not exactly, it just becomes another story. I, I like the fact that, uh, we all have that anthemic, we're all singing along to death or glory, but he's also reminding it. It just becomes another story. Just fucking settle down. That's true. Um, so I don't know. This song resonates with me. Uh, it, it, it speaks to my more cynical side of things of not just buying into, um, being at the top, but it's also a good reminder that we're better than you motherfuckers out there. Um, I, I maybe we get a little bit more, uh, on that on four horsemen, but 
this is still that old man, old punk kind of telling the youths, you know, don't be stupid. So it's good. I like it. Yeah. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable amount of quality on this record. It's well, we'll rate the record at the end today, but it, like, uh, just if you were just to take like, you know, it's like weapons grade quality, this record. Yeah. This is, this is like, this is like 20 proof beer. It's just insanity. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, a lot of nuns got fucked on this song. Um, next track, Coca-Cola. Elevator going up. In the gleaming corridor of the 51st floor. The money can be made if you really want some more. Executive decision, a clinical precision. Jumping from the winner's field. You got a very short, probably the shortest song on the album here. Uh, catchy little number, and it's really just about like the drug fueled uh skeezy uh culture of upper management in like the financial uh business uh companies i mean essentially that's what it's about um but it still has time to get a little uh catchy during the chorus i get good advice from the advertising world treat me nice party girl coke ad life's with adds life where there really isn't any so freeze man freeze uh what do you think? Uh, uh, what do you think, uh, Steve? Anything to say about Coca Cola? I say delete it. The song's unnecessary. Uh, Joe should have saved it for his solo works. It's not bad, but my God, there's enough great songs here. You don't need this on here. Mark. Yeah, I, I'm right along with you. I I, th- I thought that I was going to, when I was writing my notes out for this one, I was like, I think I might be in the minority on this one because it does sound like it could have been on B side more so than an A side. Um, it certainly does speak to those guys in the uh, uh, snakeskin boots and things like that up in the finance market or just in advertising the the modern day Don Drapers. Uh, they're always trying to sell you something and, um, you know, living and trying to tell you how to live your life through product marketing and things of that nature. And here they're on the side having a little, little booger sugar, little, little toot, uh, between, uh, their business meetings and as they're trying to then impart values onto consumers. So it's uh, an interesting uh, concept that they're th- laying out here musically. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, so not ridiculous. It's not, it's not bad. It's just kind of doesn't necessarily need to fill out a pretty long record. That's filled chalk filled with quality as someone from marketing would say. Well, I do wonder if it's here just to like literally fill this side of the record. Like remember this was back in vinyl days where you wanted each side to be X amount of time to fill it up. And this is true. Curiously less than two minutes, very short. Um, but it is, it is, you know, it's not hard on the ears. It's catchy enough. And it thematically fits through like the anti-consumerism, like anti, you know, certainly wall street, uh, and the, the plagues of capitalism that the rest of the album's about. So, you know, I'm, I'm not mad that it's on here. And it goes by quick. Uh, But it does take us to a big... 
big So apparently while they were recording this, um, they wanted this to be like huge. This is another like stadium anthem. They mm-hmm. want, they recorded every instrument twice. So it would sound as big and it panned it all out to so be as big as possible. Um, and uh, it is, it starts with like big, like Mick Jones is playing the piano on this song, like just pounding it. Like it's very big. Um, there's saxophones, uh, there's a great, uh, Mick Jones vocal performance. And, um, you got a song about, uh, basically, uh, wealthy business people that made a lot of money on the backs of others. Um, but in real life, what does that, that money really mean? And they try to tell this through, uh, like an old West card game. Um, and you got yourself, uh, get yourself that. Uh, Steve, or sorry, Mark, it's your turn to start. What do you think about the card sheet? The card sheet. I mean, um, the sound was so big that the like the production and engineering team had to open up all the doors and windows to air it out afterwards. Um, it just starts out like a Billy Joel uh, big number. Um, Maybe more more appropriately, Elton John, who we talked earlier about on this uh, very same episode. But Card Sheet's great. It's it's an awesome big song. The production, it just is layered. Uh, we do get some triumphant horns. We get um, a dark version of Kenny Rogers' The Gambler. Because uh, this cheat, this card cheat, uh, was actually put on his knees and shot. Um, so it has kind of a very cinematic feel to it as it uh, describes what's going on here. Um, maybe in a very literal sense, it's about a gambler. But then we're talking about from the five, uh, from the Hundred Year War to the Crimea with a lance and a musket and a Roman spear to all the men who have stood with no fear in the service of the king. Um, so maybe it's not about gambling. Maybe it's about gambling with your life and giving it to uh, a, a nation or something of that nature. I don't know. Joe Strummer can tell you better than I can. give it a thumbs up it's a highlight on the record yeah after my homework for this album like this might be my favorite track on the album it is so big sounding and it reminds me a lot of the e street band with those big pianos majestic pianos rising and falling these pianos doesn't surprise me they recorded everything twice or over pan- overlapped it whatever they did um and when those pianos meet with those wonderful horns it's just a goddamn orchestral movement it's great the song sounds very full, like like Mark said. You got to open up the doors, let the sounds get out. Um, just like a lot of rising action that meets the music, the passion of the vocals meet the music in all the right places. It's perfect. Um, they could have closed the record with this album, 
I'm sorry, they could have closed the album with this song, but they chose two other closers, actually, that are pretty good. This song, though, is just amazing. Card sheet. Put it in the, the Pantheon. I love it. It's just so so big and full. Uh, just uh, That's what it's all about. This track's great. Yeah, and they've, they've fully departed their kind of punk roots uh, at this point. They're, they're, it's stadium rock in, in a great way. Um, their lyrical content. And it is stadium rock, but also I hear a little bit of the Beatles. In this, I hear a little bit of the Beatles in this track. Sure. Um, yeah. Might be the, the particular use of the horns on this. Kind of has that like penny whistle lane feel to it. I don't know. Right. I love it. Um. And after that big closer, we're on to the final side of our two final set. If you're listening to it that way, you lost that grubby feeling. Yeah, hey. Ridiculous, isn't it? That's what they call it. Rock is a very weird song lyrically. Um. <laughs> It's about, about it. uh, it's, it's about uh, like kind of maybe sex addiction or but tell it to me slow yeah, though. Yeah, just yeah. tell it to me slow and just kind of like in a deeper voice though. Okay. So okay. I can sit on my washing machine when I listen to this back. <laughs> Are you close, Mark? Are you close? Uh, anyways, um, right. it's, <laughs> it's basically that like, uh, uh, people that are like have sex addictions or, or, or like kind of douchebags always always just trying to get the next strange they're they're actually depriving themselves of their of their life force and uh, yeah, and making themselves sleepy all the time I don't know this is a weird song uh, it, <laughs> it's, it's a very weird song the, the guitar is very uh, the guitar work is very interesting I, I will say it's some really cool guitar work on this track um, weird track though weird track Steve lovers rock yeah I don't think it's that weird I think this is kind of another I mean this song isn't a favorite of mine like some of the other songs but it's still kind of a classic clash song um, it also kind of was like another Bowie adjacent song to me I could imagine this being on a Aladdin Sane or a Ziggy Stardust um, I'd say they have as just as many ideas on this record as they do on Sandinista. They just edited it way better because this is a totally different vibe. I mean, this is something that like our parents could listen to. It's kind of you're you're right. It's kind of gross. Um, but but in general, this album could be enjoyed by boomer parents as well. A lot of tracks like this one and some of the more rocking songs are they're four quadrant. This is a four quadrant record. This this you're gonna get a track like this on there. Um, that dana dana the riff gets stuck in my head for days. And while not my favorite song in the album, it's not bad. It's Lovers Rock. Yeah, Lovers Rock. Um, at first, it starts a little weird. Um, but then it ends pretty strong, which could also probably describe having uh, relations with myself. So, you know, I think this song is actually about uh, safe sex, which is an important message. Uh, you know, T. Boz, Left Eye, and Chili also told us all about that on um, on the 
the cool tip. I think they uh, left eye was known to be have that name because she wore a condom over her left eye. So the clash ahead of their time. We're talking birth control here. At first, though, when she forgot that thing that she had to swallow, when I read that line, I was like, is she talking about swallowing a dick? Um, because, you know, I'm a miscreant. Uh, but uh, it was about birth control, doing the old, the, swallowing that pill. Um, but at the end, it really starts jamming out. We It almost turns into uh, like a David Bowie station to station era funk, a little, a little uh, blue eyed soul. And I like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't necessarily like think it's a highlight on the track uh, on this on this record. But I still, for whatever reason, um, I'm always mildly entertained by it. Yeah. Yes, I will. I, I'm going to go ahead and say, like, there's a few songs on this album that could be cut. And I think Lover's Rock is on the bubble. But I'd still keep it. It's 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 a light track, but it's 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 spring. You're not hurting, are you now? Not looking anyhow. You're never gonna ride alone in Horsemen is the Clash were kind of giving themselves an anthem. If if London was in the apocalypse, they were going to be the Four Horsemen of it. Um, it's a very big rock song, and um, you know they're they're basically. Uh, and I'm sure Stephen will uh, make a Metallica reference, so I'll just save it to him. Um, but whenever a band kind of puts it on the table to let others know that uh, you know. If you want to do a measuring contest, we're ready for it. And this song kind of does that. Um, so, yeah, me pulling out two dick references back to back. Um, we are now on the track of uh, the Andrew Dice Clay. But I do think that this song is not necessarily one of my favorites that sticks to the ribs. Um, I do like the message, the fact that don't, count us out even though we're essentially signed to a major record label um and going to try to push our message as far to the masses as possible because we've got this gigantic distribution system behind us they're still letting others know that we are still going to be very very relevant and you will see what we have up our sleeves um uh, like, well, they gave us everything for bending the mind and we cleaned out their pockets and we drank them blind. Um, so don't get left behind by those horsemen. So good stuff. Musically, eh, kind of there. And the four horsemen. Time has taken its toll on you. The lines that crack your face. Famine, your body, it has torn through, withered in every place. Pestilence for what you've had to endure and what you have put others through. Death, deliverance for you for sure. Now there's nothing you can do. That's from Metallica's Four Horsemen. Sung by Matt Berry. Yes. yes. And it's the superior of the Four Horsemen songs. 
this one's pretty good too. Yep. Not the most memorable melody. Uh, I'm trying to hum it now and can't, but I know when it comes on, I like how it sounds in my ears. So that's not bad. But what I can't get out of my head is the next track. Another Mick Jones jam. I'm not down. But I'm not down. Nick Jones wrote this kind of defiant song about uh, just kind of hitting the gutter, hitting the skids in his life, and um, uh, whether he was jumped or, or you know, uh, destitute, um, but that he's always going to come back. And it's a it's an uplifting little track. It's got some goddamn funky guitar, Paul Simmons bass line, disco chorus, uh, and. Uh, it's got this one part that uh, that I think you guys probably have in your notes too. Down and down and hit the floor. Anyways, uh, I'm not down. What a cool track. Go away. Go down and down and hit the floor. Down and down and down for more depression. But I know there'll be some way when I can swing everything. Yeah, we had another classic. I mean, the Four Horsemen wasn't a classic, but they all can't be. Um... This song, Eric, earlier you said there was a song that like had really relatable lyrics. I think this one does too. You know, I've been beat up, I've been thrown out, but I'm not down. No, I'm not down. I've been shown up, but I've grown up, and I'm not down. No, I'm not down. The song is very inspiring. Um, there's just a, you know, even the way they use those woes and the calls and responses, uh, they, they kind of have like this sense of community and like we can all, you know, pick ourselves up off the floor. Um, we can all be tub thumpers, if you will. Uh, the song, it, it, it strikes a chord in me. Uh, it's very, yeah, it's inspiring. Um, but it, it, again, beyond that, the, it has great, great bass production on it. There's unbelievable clarity of the instruments on this track. There's a section where there's a hell of like a rave up and the band like is getting to go before the next chorus comes in. And uh, there's some hi-hat work on this one that's just killer. It's a, a master class. Um, this album has many songs that transcend time and space, cultures and creeds, and can appeal and be a relatable to anyone. And I think this is another one that's like that. I really like it. It's three minutes of fun. I mean, honestly, I know that, uh, again, this is what... The Clash. I'm 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 kind of smelling their 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 uh their little strategy here. Um, let's kind of talk about issues with songs you want to shimmy your shoulders to. Um, I think that that's a really great Trojan horse of them trying to appeal to a kind of a mass audience. Springsteen did this very very aptly with Born in the USA. That song used to be a I felt like a fireworks show was going to happen, but instead you look at the lyrics and, you know, it makes you kind of wonder of how we treat veterans and things of that nature. And the clash do this very similar talking about mental health and trying to overcome that. And 
masquerading it in a song that just makes you want to just shake your little booty too. Um, it's good. I mean, the guitar work on here is great. Um, and you know, I'm sure like Steven could describe whoosh guitar, but I feel like I'm hearing just a little, little, little beginning of whoosh guitar on here, but I like it. It's great. I'm not down. It'll, it'll, it'll lift you up if you're feeling down. That's for sure. Um, and what could be a closing track, but isn't gives way to what it also could be a closing track, but isn't revolutionary revolution rock. This here revolution rock. Careful how you slide, Kyle. All you did was slide. You poured your beer in me hot. Keep my good eye on the beat, living on the safe street. I ain't got no time for that. Revolution Rock. This is another cover song originally performed by Danny Ray and the Revolutionaries. Um, and this is like a, what starts off as kind of like a slow reggae song um, uh, that just kind of is about it's about this kind of new it's, it's basically it was a reggae song about like celebrating the fact that music was becoming more political and fighting against the power. And that's, and that's what it is. Um, it's got some great lines, like some great ab libs. It's food for thought, mobsters. Um, and it, what's a very simple reggae song ends up devolving into like dub heaven towards the end. And you can see why maybe at the time they thought they were going to close the album with this as it just goes into space towards the end. Um, but, uh, Mark, what do you think about revolution rock? You know, at first, again, um, not my style of music in terms of the genre. It's uh, what's going on here. But uh, when looking at it from a, a kind of a bigger picture um, and seeing how this potentially, which I would argue should have been the, the closing, the actual closer of the album, um, I felt like maybe Train in Vain could be moved up just a few more slots and we're cooking with gas. But not to say that this album isn't sequenced right. I'm just saying that it feels like this is actually intended to be the, the closer. Um, it's it's good. It's uh, five and a half minutes long. Um, I think it's the longest track on the entire record. And it goes out with a little bit of a celebration. Again, I had no idea that it was a cover. I honestly thought it was an original. Just The Clash doing The Clash things by experimenting. But, you know, they want to showcase a lot of the influences that they really enjoy. Um, you know, being in London, England and hearing this new style of music and how to incorporate that. I feel like reggae had more of a resurgence over in England than it did in uh, over here in the States. It eventually got to us, but I just feel that whenever you hear people talk about reggae is these avid fans uh, coming from, you know, the UK. Um, so yeah, revolution rock. Uh, it grew on me. It grew on me. Uh, it, I think it's featured on a lot of their greatest hits. And it's just another 
fact that they probably now own this song more so than Danny Ray. So there you go. Yeah. And you're, you're right. This was intended to be the closer. Um, and we'll talk about what happened with train and vein. Um, and you can tell by the way, this song fades out, uh, Steve thoughts. Yeah. That song is great. It's a great way to, uh, end an album and to bring it all home. And I think you can tell it was supposed to be the closer. Um, I think it was the closer on maybe some pressings. I'm not quite sure how that works, but, um, yeah, I mean, this album's probably caused me to dance more than any other record we've talked about, which is crazy because we talked about Purple Rain. But a lot of these songs just make me get up and move, and this is one of them. Uh, I'm a sucker for any song that tells you everything's going to be all right, which I think is actually like a whole subgenre of reggae now that I think about it. I'm not a huge reggae fan, but I I, I do just like the vibe and the, the, the feeling of this track. Um, there's a lot of layering of uh, percussion and, and playing things off into the distance spaciness. Um, I don't want that on every track, but I, I dig it for this track. And I feel like they just put a lot of work in and just like going out with a bang. Um, again, I feel like there's slipknot levels of percussion on this track. And uh, yeah, I was, I was driving around with the kids listening to this one too. And I looked in the rearview mirror and both of them were smiling, listening to it. I like that feeling. I like when you look back at your, at your kids and they don't know you're looking at them. And you can see they're having a good time, and they did with the Revolution Rock. Uh, you can't ask for more than that. Music that makes kids happy is the best. So it's a good, it's a great closer. I dig it. It's a, it's just this. This album's a fun ride. It's got moments where it is got heavy lyrical content, but it's got a lot of joy to it. And I feel like this blends those two things together: the Revolution and the Rock. And yes, you're right. As it. Uh, it's a, it's a fun sunshiny track and it ends up just kind of going out into dub spaced out land at the end. And that was supposed to be the end, but then Mick Jones found his way back into the studio with this song. He just had to get down on wax. And the artwork was already done for the first pressing. It didn't even list it on there. It was more like a secret song. And in subsequent releases, they 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 put it on there. And you have Train in Vain, which is like, honestly, this like the first time you hear it, like, is this a cover? Like, this could be like an old Motown song. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the, yep. It's just a perfect, like, it's just a perfect kind of pop track that has some R&B and funk leanings. And um, it's got a bass line, like the slap track. It's got a bass line over a slap bass line. It's got two bass lines. And uh, it's, it's, it's a really cool track. I don't know. It's good. Steve, what do you think about Train of Vain? Well, I mean, much like, you know, Korn's classic cover of Cheech and Chong's Earache My Eye. We all love a good hidden track. Um, but like, even in my notes, I did put, just like you just said, Eric, this song sounds like it could be a classic Motown song. It's exactly what I wrote. Um, 
and they they were good at that. Like they, you know, they do those classic covers, and this sounds like they're paying it back. It sounds like it. Like this is it sounds like a classic rock song from the late sixties or early seventies. Um, and I I love the way his voice kind of has a hitch to it, where he says, you know, say hey, stand by me, James Dean. It's a it's 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 fun to put this song at the end of this record and then have this be the fade out. Um, Train of Vane's a great track, and I like that Annie Lennox version that you told us about too. I listened to that. It's good. It's a good good way to end this song. I like you can end with either of these. You can end with Revolution Rock, which has the big rave out, and has like you know the revolution of the lyrics and the rock of the rock, which is the whole point of this band. But then also there's this other playful, soulful throwback version of this band and i think that's what this song is either way good good double closers it's a hard trick to pull just end with a kind of like a love like a heartbreak song mm-hmm. uh but but an upbeat one mark what do you think train in vain i, I mean train in vain uh, just get out of town i mean it's such a great great song um the opening little guitar plucks you immediately start shaking your your little tush to it i mean it's it's (laughs) it's ridiculously it's ridiculously catchy uh his his vocal delivery is um just amazing um (laughs) i don't know i mean like franz ferdinand like was spawned that day out of this fucking so many so many different Um, genres of music are on this record like they 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 burble bubbled to life on this album somewhere it's wild yeah yeah um i mean while i was listening back to this and i think there were more contemporaries but that band television um they also kind of like dealt with these kind of just it felt like a live wire kind of uh coming off the guitar rather than um you know an actual riff so yeah, train in vain. Um, I love the title of the song, even though he never says it. Everyone thought the song was called "Stand by Me" um, because it wasn't printed actually on the record sleeve. So yeah, train. This could be one of their biggest singles ever if they did release it as such. It was so good. And that brings us to close a nineteen-track album. So many all-timers. Uh, this was kind of my like, like, uh, you know, card up my sleeve for this season. I picked a lot of, you know, I'm sure I picked a lot of weird stuff, but this one I knew, I knew would be a crowd pleaser and I couldn't wait to talk about it with you guys. Um, what's your, what's your ranking on this one, Steve? How many Cadillacs, <laughs> brand new Cadillacs are you, are you buying for this album? There you go. Well, that's way better. I am uh, uh, five Cadillacs and this is in the upper escalon of albums we've talked about. Like mathematically, this might be the best album we've ever talked about. If you like do the math and you take the amount of songs divided by the all timer songs, uh, you know, to the common denominator of the only middling songs of which there's like one and a half. Um, pure weapons grade quality. Then you throw in how many how influential the album is, even the album covers influential. But just, just the, the joy that you find in this album, it makes you it's thought-provoking. It takes genres that the three of us are not huge fans of, like the reggae-adjacent stuff. And every one of those songs, for the most part, like some of them are even like our favorites on the album. Like, you know, it's just, 
it's just it's just I don't know how they managed to pull this off. And many albums of all, like best albums of all time, you're gonna find this in the top ten. It's just like it's a any genre. It's a wonderful piece of art, a wonderful piece of rock and roll, a wonderful piece of uh, music. Uh, this is just everything about it. And then when you go, you know, Joe Strummer is kind of like a folk hero. That part of it's fun. Um, I love it. It's five. Absolute five. Five. Yeah, I mean, how could it not be? I mean, it's it's an essential album in anyone's record collection. Uh, it, it deserves its spot on a lot of those critics. Best of all time. Uh, it just has ev- something for everybody. I mean, even the tracks that I don't feel are standouts, like Coca Cola, and maybe one other track that I'm just like, okay, it's it, Four Horsemen, maybe, but okay. Um, they still are probably better songs than a lot of bands have ever produced. Um, the Clash are are great. Um, and I think this record shows why they're great. So it is a also a five star record for me. I almost considered doing a four point nine, but I I just feel like no, it deserves a perfect score. Yeah, I mean the only thing would... can be a bit long, but it's fine. It goes by fast. If you delete those two middling songs, you still have an hour of like perfect music. So it's just that's you gotta you gotta yeah. respect it. Yeah, five five brand new Cadillacs for me as well. Um, this one's and before I let you continue, Eric, that's the first time this entire season that this an album scored the hat trick. Hat trick. So oh, All right, ding ding. Yeah. Look at that. The f- first time. Probably gonna be the only. Hopefully not. But well, now, we'll considering what's we'll left, see. I bet you it'll be the only. But. Either way, uh, very deserving of it. I swear to God. Yeah. I, I let, I let, let's just keep cutting Eric off. We'll let Eric finish in a second. But like out of like this, never felt like homework. I listened to it probably twenty times. Like I was excited to listen to it every time to listen to it again. It's fucking a lot of f words here, but just uh, top tier. Eric, what do you think about the album you suggested? Well, no, it, I we've said all there is to say about it. Um, what I other things I like is like you know I. I I enjoy a lot of like eighties new wave kind of stuff. And, and there, they were like, this is 1979. So they were like proto kind of figuring that out, but also had their feet in, in other worlds that had nothing to do with new wave, like, like the ska and, and, uh, and the, uh, the old rockabilly. And I just love it. Just connection to rock and roll. It just, it just feels like a potent rock and roll album. Um, and, but it, but it always has a punk snarl. It's very critical of what the eighties mainstream, like, uh, like would become, um, the, the Margaret Thatcher Reagan, uh, economics of the eighties. Like it's, it's a powerful record. I, I love it. So glad you guys like it too. Five out of five. Fantastic. If you, um, follow the members along a little bit past the clash, and we'll do this fast. I promise. Uh, Joe Strummer uh, did make a solo album in the 80s uh, or, or late 80s that very much has like the production value of an Eric Clapton from that time. It doesn't have the hard edge that you would hope, but um, 
but then he got into soundtrack work. He did the soundtrack to a spaghetti western called Walker. That's really good. Um, Steve, I know you check that out. Uh, he did the mute the the score to Gross Point Blank, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, and just kind of kind of feeling it out until he uh, found his uh, solo band, the Mescaleros, in the early aughts. I remember getting the. Uh, Global Agogo record as a promo when we worked at Dimple and um, kind of fusing his Americana love with some like electronic programming um, and uh, you know making some great tracks about three or four albums culminating in a duet with Johnny Cash. Uh, Steve, I think you've got some ideas on, on his solo work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I listened to most of it. Um... But I just that that global go go album I really like. I listened to listened to it all the way through and um, really liked it. Um, I mean, the one thing in his solo work I want to make sure we mention is just his cover of Redemption Song with Johnny Cash is an all timer. Oh, yeah. uh, the that duet is beautiful, and uh, when when Joe comes in singing about the prophets, it is. Songs, redemption songs Old pirates, yes they rob I Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless um, And then, uh, so, you know, Joe Strummer died in what? What was it? 2004? 2003? And, Sounds about uh, right. Just kind of unexpectedly from like a heart a heart condition, um, and and kind of right when his solo work was getting a lot of attention. Um, but uh, going back back in time a little bit, uh, Mick Jones once he was fired from the band, he brought his kind of new interest in electronic rap, funk, that kind of stuff, and started Big Audio Dynamite. What's the play for the heartache and the pain? He started it with this guy, Don Letts. Don Letts was this DJ um, who was the one that introduced all the punks in London to reggae music. And uh, um, he actually directed the film Westway to the World. Um, Don Letts, what he gave to punk music, I think can't be under undersaid. He, he was pretty, pretty pivotal. Um, so anyways, they made Big Audio Dynamite. Big Audio Dynamite is kind of ridiculous, but Mick Jones is still giving us those hooks that get stuck in your head. Um, clash hooks with dance beats, funk beats, rap. Um, and then the lineup would change over time. Uh, they would crescendo uh, with uh, their, their album, The Globe, with the song Rush, which was a big hit. Um, actually, the song The Globe also samples Should I Stay or Should I Go. Um, just a very weird uh, amalgam of punk and uh, early 90s uh, techno and rap um, but uh, a lot of people like their music they were they were a big success I don't know if you guys checked out Big Audio Dynamite or have anything to say on the matter I've been I... down Harlem baby is that them are they the ones who do that song? no I've been <laughs> primitive down... radio gods that's... I've been down Harlem <laughs> that's... baby <laughs> that's <laughs> that's primitive radio gods no <laughs> it's the same but they're, they're not... coming from the, the, yeah. the same town yeah, so as our EMF, Jesus Jones, 
yeah um but jesus jones i did, i mean is is that the kind of uh uh what i would expect out of bad uh i would say their later stuff is i would say bad would be the best version of all that stuff but yes it's still very dated the earlier stuff is very much just like i think it's a little bit more authentic that was when don letts was still in the band it's a little bit more like synth funk in a great way um i recommend the first couple albums of of, of big audio dynamite uh, the globe. I mean, down Harlem, baby. <laughs> and uh, 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 but you know, good for Mick Jones. He got to write his his tunes, and uh, I do think I do remember. There's a great song called "Plastic Beach" off one of the Gorillas albums, where uh, he and Paul Simmerman reunite uh, with Damon. Great track. Um, so good for them. Um, but yes, the, 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 and Paul Simmerman became quite a producer in his own right, producing a lot of albums. I think he produced like some of those early Libertines albums. And, um, anyways, uh, great, 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 uh, group of lads. Uh, always happy to see him do well. Um, but shall we move on to the rolling for the next album? Is that where we're yes. at? All right. Oh, yeah, let's do it. All right. Thank you, Clash. Thank you, Eric. It is time to move on. That's a four. Primitive Radio Gods. Four. Primitive Radio Gods. We're going it's the, to. It's the, uh, Steven could only hope. It's the Cable Guy soundtrack. <laughs> I know that was a late edition, but we decided to throw a soundtrack in there. <laughs> uh,. Which not a bad idea, no, um, but no, uh, no more, no more, no more albums. This, this band did find itself on a few soundtracks, um, and that band, hailing from Northern California, the San Francisco Bay Area, to be exact, my pick. <laughs> 1992's Faith No More's Angel Dust will be discussed on an episode, whether it is a two-parter, which could be a possibility where we talk about just Mike Patton in one episode and then Faith No More in the second one. Um, that could happen. Um, so Faith No More, Angel Dust. Uh, we get to hear uh, where potentially the Deftones found a lot of inspiration and a multitude of bands finding a lot of inspiration from faith no more. I'm very excited to be talking about this. Um, Mike Patton is definitely one of my guys and faith no more, um, is a band that I, uh, just watched guardians of the galaxy part three today. And there's a needle drop in there folks. And, uh, it's for a reason. All right. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, find us on all the socials. If you want to throw a cup of coffee into our uh, Ko-Fi uh, uh, tip jar, you know where to find that in the show notes. Thank you, Eric and Steve. And this has been Mark, and we hope that we brought you closer to Clash. God, we're getting... We're getting worse at those. Lazy. We're getting worse at those. We're getting, Eric had to bail himself out with the Cadillac keys thing. They say you stand by your man. 
Tell me something I don't understand You said you love me And that's a fact And then you left me Said you felt trapped Well, some things you can't explain away But the heart aches with me till this day Did you stand by me? Did you stand by me? No way.